to the ATI podcast everybody yeah, episode yeah. 20 20 already yeah already oh. 20 god dude we're already knocking them out uh, I, we have more episodes now than what we did on the original run so right yeah we surpassed yeah for sure so we're just gonna kick things off today we're gonna get to it in a hurry with some current event type stuff of course we gotta talk about them cardinals once again oh dude my birds goldschmidt player of the week already uh, Post MVP. his player of the month. MVP. He had a monster home run yesterday in the game in Milwaukee. Uh, actually, yeah. he and Arenado, I believe, went back to back. Yeah, I mean, even Arenado, when they were in Boston, I mean, what, did he go over the green monster yes. twice? Yep. And Effortlessly, too. <laughs> we have to mention, if we're talking about the Cardinals, Nolan Gorman in his insane rookie campaign essentially that he's having i've like had nothing but great things to say about these boys nolan gorman brendan donovan you know all the rookie class players they have like contributed so much to the success of the cardinals so far this season that you can't you know you can't thank them enough for their contributions it's just unreal definitely and i i was looking at some stats you know he's got i believe the highest on base percentage of any person with his essentially when he started his career in the majors right to the point that he is now he ranks in top five and the only other people that are up there are like albert Pujols, for right. example his right. numbers are even better than albert Pujols. and that crazy man at this point <laughs> in his career already so it's and, insane and his de- defense is uh, i mean he's the best third baseman in the league hands yeah down. And, uh, well, Gorman's kind oh. of a utility player right now. Are we talking about Gorman? Yeah, or are we Gorman. talking about Arenado? Oh, Gorman, Gorman, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he can play anywhere. Yeah, Gorman can play. We've seen him in the field. We've seen him at second. We've seen him in, on third. But, yeah, I mean, the Cardinals Yepes. are just killing it. Another one. Yepes. Again, he's 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 nailing it. And uh, we got to talk about Albert Pulbeholst and some of the goodbye salutations that he's getting from other teams. Classy move by the Red Sox. Yeah. Yeah, David Ortiz came out, gave him a five off the scoreboard. Yep, of course he's number five. Yeah, and the whole dugout of the Red Sox came out and wished him congratulations. Right, and gave him a standing ovation, which is just unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that some players were speaking out to the lack of goodbye tour that Albert Pujols was getting and mm-hmm. the unprofessionalism from some ball clubs. Right, I mean this is a once in a generation talent. Uh, there's really, you know, the time that he's put into the game, few, if any, have amassed the stats that he has on both sides of the ball. He's a gold glove first baseman, has been on his almost his entire career. The only person that's really vied for that spot outside of him is Goldschmidt, and Goldschmidt is now on the Cardinals. Right. During Goldschmidt's campaign with Arizona, of course. But consistently, those were the two best defensive first basemen for, you know, 10 years plus in the National League, so... Yeah. We want to hit some more current events topics. So, did you see that Colbert's team and No, I was going to ask you about got this. arrested at the Capitol? I didn't know about this. Yeah. 
So they got arrested by, uh, I believe it was Capitol Police specifically, but they were on site trying to get some bits and stuff together for the insurrection hearings that they're having, the January 6th right. insurrection hearings. Right. And they got arrested and processed, then released. And there really wasn't much really to it. And Colbert himself didn't seem to take great issue with it. Right. It preferred that it didn't happen, of course. But right. immediately Fox News picked up on this and they reported it as though that they were participating in insurrectionist activities themselves. <laughs> Now, that right there tells you that Fox News is fucking stupid, and they have no idea what the definition of insurrection is. Insurrection is literally stopping the ability for lawful legal proceedings to take place with government officials, the functions of government. You know, like, that's not at all what was happening. They were there to do essentially satirical and comedic bits with a puppet dog that (laughs) smokes a cigarette, or excuse me, cigar. You know, so just shows you how stupid these people are. Not that this is a huge shock to me, but, you know, again, this is complete evidence of the spin machine that and the biases of media and the interests that are behind their work. It's totally absurd and ridiculous. What's new with Fox News? Right. Another development came out with the Uvalde, Texas stuff. So there's hearings being taken place now, I guess, to essentially find out all what what happened and everybody's trying to do their due due diligence and kind of correct those mistakes going forward to stop things like that or at least the reaction times the poor response times the poor response quality so on and so forth so didn't i see i think one of the police like the police chief or something was placed on administrative leave over the incident pending the investigation uh that i'm not sure about but the big thing that i was going to report on was the fact that they acknowledged the fact that the door was actually unlocked the entire time. Right. And the police didn't even try to open the door. Yeah, well, I guess their excuse that I keep hearing was they're waiting on a response team or a SWAT team. Which well, they is were. Total horseshit. Also, <laughs> it was framed as such that the door was barricaded and right. they couldn't get in. That was the story, right? Right. It turns out nobody even attempted to go inside the door that was unlocked that the shooter got into right. as it was. So, right. Just another detail on the incompetencies and the just unfortunate series of events that took place there. Yeah. Of course, we've mentioned it, but the January 6th hearings uh, continue on. Last time, whenever recording three, uh, the session three was taking place, that was mostly with Pence's advisors that we mentioned. We honestly did catch a lot of the big bullet points before we got on and, and spoke about those, but... The fourth hearing, it included Georgia election officials. Essentially, you know, what we all knew was going on in real time, but you actually got to hear more detailed accounts right. as to what happened, what took place. It was Specifically, what struck a chord with me was the detailed response. Uh, she was an African-American election worker. Her name escapes me at the moment, but she kind of detailed the fact that because she was being called out by name, her name was mentioned, and uh, Trump kind of publicized, I believe, some of her information in his his riffraff of characters. She literally feared for her life. She couldn't, she had to go into seclusion. Her and her mother couldn't even go to the grocery store, which is pathetic. The Georgia secretary of state too, that rebutted Trump, also Republican, but you know, he's the one that Trump famously told them to go find him his votes. He uh, also testified and just kind of cooperated everything that we kind of knew to this point with all that. Yeah. Five was today and Essentially, the agenda forecasted was that they were going to go a deep dive on uh, Rosenberg, who was the 
acting attorney general <laughs> whenever Barr resigned. That's a tongue twister. Yeah. <laughs> so whenever Barr resigned, of course, it was in December. Government changed hands as far as the officials and everything in January. As every inauguration happens, usually January 20th. And so as the guard was changing or whatever, so it was just a very brief stint is my point right. for the interim Rosenberg. Well, Trump automatically wanted to replace him because he didn't pursue, what, or at least from Trump's perception, he wasn't pursuing what he was calling election fraud and his quote-unquote votes being stolen. And he was claiming that there was fraudulent mail-in balance and fraudulent Requesting voting machines. Requesting machines be seized right. and all kinds of wild so stuff. So because Rosenberg wouldn't follow suit as well, even as acting AG, he was being threatened to be fired. And essentially what happened was all the underlings and everybody that worked in the DOJ threatened to resign. So, and we've heard many reports of that. One thing I wanted to bring up about the January 6th hearings that we kind of glossed over previously was the fact that they're kind of looking at this as a multi-front fraudulent claims, also just beyond the, well, well let's spend it back on them, the fake news of the fake or excuse me, the improper you know voting machines and mail-in ballots that are being alleged by Trump and and right. were the entire time. The big lie. The big the bigger lie here is what Trump was doing to his followers and supporters. Quite frankly, they started the election defense fund and kept <laughs> raising money. They raised two hundred fifty million dollars. In fact. Money that stop the steal fun. Yes, money that of course that those people never saw again, and nothing was done with because they did have no legal recourse to pursue. No, they essentially. just pocketed it. And I'll tell you exactly what happened. It went into a Trump-created super PAC. Yep. So super PACs unfortunately came back in the Trump administration. Also, that was another thing that during the Obama administration it was nearly eradicated totally. Well, back with the Trump administration, Trump put all the money into his own super PAC. Obviously, if you know anything about super PACs and are a decent human being, you think they're horrible, corrupt, and evil. Yeah, it's legal corruption, man. It's exactly what it is. It's almost like legal racketeering in in many ways. Yeah. And special interests are often behind the money. Right. And special interest agendas. Yep. So here we go into special interest in politics. Yeah. It needs to be totally removed. Whenever Trump was preaching drain the swamp, that's really this type of stuff. That Amen. Let's drain. fucking drain it for real. Yeah. <laughs> so what's interesting is $5 million of that $250 million specifically went to the organization that ran the January 6th demonstration that Trump put on. So again, we're, we're and it is believed that some of those funds went back to Trump surrogates, essentially. So I believe in, in these hearings, at least some of what's being revealed in the depositions, I, I think some of the goal is anyways, I don't know that we'll get all these answers with this in particular, but they're, they're looking at those funds and how they were distributed. But that's kind of the problem with super PACs is, you know, there's, there's not a lot of transparency typically. Right. And it's certainly not reported on routinely and in the media and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's not a lot of transparency, as, as I said before. Let's talk about the government a little bit more. A lot of questionable Supreme Court rulings coming down here recently. Yeah, what was the one that just came down yesterday? You're allowed to carry a firearm in public, but, but states can, yeah, I guess, so, limit where it's proper and not proper. So this is a New York case specifically. New York, for 100 years plus, has had a conceal and carry law that essentially the language was that you had to have proper cause to conceal and carry a weapon in public. 
Well, the Supreme Court voted that down six to three. And New York, of course, is typically a more liberal state, usually has a little bit more of a liberal agenda. And mainly those things are controlled by the you know, Democratic cities right. in, in the voting because they're more densely populated. That's where the highest concentration of their populations are in their voting power. Also, we uh, we had an, a huge issue with separation of church and state, essentially. We've kind of regressed here. And then as in Maine, the Supreme Court ruled that funds, taxpayer funds specifically, could go back into and should go back into religious institutions, so a religious school. So we're talking like your Catholic schools, your Lutheran schools that you might be familiar with here locally, according to them in that case in that state. So that's just going to open up a sea of, because the Supreme Court ruled it there, it's what's good for one is good for all, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Right. You know, same concept, that's how these things typically go whenever the Supreme Court makes these types of rulings. What's really interesting about the 6-3 split is it's your conservative idealized, you know, jurors, essentially, right. your chief justices and, and justices that are voting, that they're that voting block of six, you know, and that's what was also so dangerous about Trump's presidency is how much power he had. And they blocked Obama's nominations as he was going out of office right? as well, whereas Trump got to shoe in horn, shoehorn in his people. So the, the voting power of the Supreme Court has kind of been turned upside down, you know, with the six, with the six, three rulings, just in these examples alone. We also had a Miranda rights decision that I wanted to explore a little bit further, but I want to encourage folks to go online and check out the recent Supreme court ruling on Miranda rights specifically and how they can be essentially whether or not you are read your Miranda rights is whether or not you can pursue a, a civil case against the police department now. <laughs> so it's absurd but uh, you, everybody needs to be aware of what their civil liberties are and their protections. I hope that, you know, the ACLU, with it being a Supreme Court decision like this, it's already been escalated to the Supreme right. Court. You know, the likelihood that things will be revisited. It's not impossible, you know. Like, there's a lot of chatter right now about abortion being revisited, Roe v. Wade, that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's not impossible that something be done more justly there. But everybody needs to be aware of what's going on here. Absolutely. And understand that that's sure why elections things, matter. Right. Understand things that affect you and the things that you can play a part in. You know what I mean? By exactly. electing people that represent your way of life, well, how you think. You know what I mean? 100%. It is important. <laughs> but anyway, another, another, we'll move on from politics. Dad's, that's my dad's speech for you guys. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> we'll move on from politics, though. So. Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson, you know, the former quarterback yeah. of the Texans. He's in some big trouble, huh? He essentially didn't play at all last year because of all the sexual assault allegations that were brought against him in the right. 20s range, specifically. Now, notice I use the word allegations. Allegedly. So they took these to, these were civil matters, essentially. And most of the instances in an overwhelming and large majority were with, like, massage therapists, uh, masseuses, and things of that ilk. That, I mean, I'm just going to put it comedically that he was looking for the finishing job, if you will, <laughs> so, or some variation thereof. So he had, he has at least 24 cases pending against him right now. And there's a couple others pending. I think it's at least in the 20, at the 26 mark. And these are so, all sexual assault cases? Yeah, all sexual assault cases. Gotcha. And I believe they're pretty much all around and surrounding the Texas area where he played. Right. How long has Watson been in Texas? 
It's been a while, right? A little over four years, I want to say, or okay. was, or was, I should say. Now he's been traded to Cleveland, and then he signed in a new contract. They just totally redid his contract with right. longer years, more money. Right. So he got all this guaranteed money up front. Now, magically, he has settled 20 out of the 24 <laughs> cases he's out like, of court, and the four other four others are, are, are pending settlement. He's like, I got to get out of Texas. Here you go. Here's some money. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So Texas, uh, he got out of Texas. He got his money. And, I mean, one way to look at it, I had a friend message me this, Matt Miller, if you listen, my friend. He got his guaranteed money so he could pay off his... Which, I mean, any player wants that, but right. his was almost unheard of, especially with the right. controversy that was surrounding him, the clout that was surrounding him. Yeah. And he was starting to get kind of that diva label as well. So, yeah. Yeah. So Deshaun Watson settled out of court 20 of his 24 cases already. So there's four open right now. They're in the process of going through the paperwork is what his attorney said. So I, I could guarantee you that those are going to get settled. And then who knows what happens with these other two. But one can assume probably something of similar ilk. Um, it's not in the notes, but I just wanted to mention too, did you see that Bill Cosby had a civil settlement with like a, a girl that he supposedly sexually assaulted in the twenties or in the seventies, she was in her twenties or seventies yeah. or eighties or something like that. And I knew it was a high dollar amount. So. Well, at some point I want us to actually cover on the show. So W Camille Bell, who I love, right. Intelligent guy had his own show on FX briefly yeah. and they canceled it. Now he's got shows on CNN. He just did a Bill Cosby documentary for Showtime called simply, I think it's called Cosby. Yeah. And it's getting, you know. Critically acclaimed, applauded, so on and so forth. So uh, it does a very deep dive. It talks to all the survivors. And literally while they were filming it is when Cosby was released from prison. I got you. And essentially why Cosby got released is they found a loophole in essentially because whenever he went to go in to do a deposition, they told him that anything that he said wasn't going to be held against him and they weren't going to essentially place charges on him based on that. They were just trying to tie up, and I believe this was in the Philadelphia uh, police system specifically. But they were just bringing him in as a formality, essentially, to investigate. Right. I wouldn't call that an investigation, but he essentially the, – the, the police were just going through the motions, quite frankly, <laughs> just to put it simply. Yeah. So, But then they turned around and used some of that stuff in the deposition against him in his court hearing and ultimately affected the ruling and the jurors and so on and so forth. So that's why he got out of prison. Moving on, Elon Musk's daughter, his oldest daughter, that is, so people don't realize he's actually got more than one kid yeah. out there. And so the, the kids that he had with Grimes and they have all the wacky-ass names, uh, this is not them. He has an 18-year-old daughter who literally went to court because she wanted to have her name changed to her mother's name because she did not want to be associated whatsoever further with her father. And so usually whenever you go to court and have to have your name changed, you have to give reasons. And uh, her reasons specifically where she did not want to be associated with her father and his anti-LGBTQT plus viewpoints, more specifically his hate and his ignorance toward the trans community and that she tr- supported the trans community. I feel so, like Elon had the opportunity to be like one of the biggest contributors contributors to mankind. You know what I mean? And a lot of people looked up to him, absolutely. but he just got drunk in the power. He's lost it. You know absolutely. what I mean? He's just he's another million billionaire that, you know... I just, uh, it, he just had so much, so much potential to be a great human. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he just, it just went way south. And he's tried to be cute, <laughs> tongue in cheek lately, right. like to act like he was a pro, we'll say like Democrat or he was a Democrat or registered Democrat or they voted Democrat. But as long as I've been aware of the guy in the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of talk of his more specific libertarian beliefs, Yeah, which Libertarian on paper sounds great. It's lovely. But most people that I know that are actually libertarian or profess to be libertarians 
are in fact more alt-right Republicans. And really on the political spectrum, those two things don't actually align with one another. Right. So it's, I think it's people trying to paint themselves in a veil of, you know, essentially sheep's wolf and sheep clothing. Yeah, it's a wolf yeah. and sheep. Yeah. So I, I just, you know, you, you guys do, do your homework on people. Don't, don't fall for the bullshit that they try to sell you. Right. That's just kind of the simple matters there. Elon Musk had a lot of potential. Like Josh said, you know, very intelligent, obviously richest guy in the world. You know, things got to be pretty bad whenever you're the 18 year old daughter of the richest man in the world. And you want to have nothing to do with him, right? You want to separate you wanna yourself your from name. the richest man. I mean, in you're the talking, world. you're t- you're cutting yourself off monetarily there, right? So that tells you, and she mo- knows the man more intimately than any of us ever will. Absolutely, so there's something more going on there. Yeah. So don't be putting all of your sticks in the Elon Musk campfire. All right. Yeah. Do your research on the guy. He's a uh talk with our guest who's doug wicker this week from search party pictures doug's got a film that's going to be debuting in the chattanooga film festival doug's actually going to be joining us here in a moment we're just waiting for him to hit the lobby in our waiting room but we definitely want to do doug and his time justice and talk about everything that he's worked on in the past everything Absolutely. he has in the works he's got and some awesome stuff coming out we, so. we've been plugging the chattanooga film festival which is virtual you can buy passes i believe that there's there's two different tiers of passes there's an 18 dollar function and then I believe there's like $150. And uh, th- of course, those memberships allow you to different things. So we'll let Doug explain that to us uh, on his call today whenever he taps in. But let's get to Obi-Wan real quickly until Doug gets in. So Obi-Wan just finished its first season. Of course, it's the story. Essentially, it's it's filling in the gap between A New Hope and where things left off with Episode 3. So that's that timeline that essentially... Obi-Wan or Ben Kenobi went into hiding on Tatooine right. and essentially was being kind of a silent guardian angel for Luke. Right. And, you know, this revisits the whole relationship and him discovering Obi-Wan that is that Anakin is still alive, right. a.k.a. Vader. Yeah. So, well, see, and the thing is, is like a lot of fans, a lot of hardcore Star Wars fans thought that the prequels would give us all that backstory and all that void of, you know, of how Vader become Vader and who he was, but it really did come up short. So they did an excellent job in the series of really, like you said, right. filling in that gap. You know, what else was really cool that I thought was, is like, I was reading that, you know, some of the writers and Deborah Chow and all them, that it was so difficult to write this show because there's so much Star Wars canon that they had to research so many different shows you there's know, so storyboard, right? Realize. Yeah, the st- well, a lot of the books aren't canon anymore technically since Disney has bought them. But yeah, they they did their research, they did their homework, and they stayed true to a lot of Star Wars projects. And um, hats off to them for that because there's lots of Easter eggs throughout the episodes. Oh, too. dude, so many um, cameos and like right. you said, Easter eggs. Um, the story writing was phenomenal. I thought the acting was good. I, I'm trying to give you a summary without spoiling anything for you. Yeah, we're trying to remain a little bit. Because <laughs> it just happened. So, you know, yeah. I don't want to spoil the anything. The finale was literally last night as recording. It's Thursday today. Yeah. But, yeah, the finale was was excellent, well acted. What The big thing that I immediately noticed with this season is the improvement of the star, the lightsaber fights. Yeah, they're they're more action cut. There's a lot more camera movement. There's a lot more. It's not so two dimensional. Right. The camera follows behind people. They do over the top shots, right. kind of God's eye shots, if you will. They do large landscape shots. The visuals, dude. It's, With it's the just lighting. incredible. Yeah. And, you, and in fact, this interaction between 
Obi-Wan and Vader in the finale is top notch of the best scenes I've seen in any <laughs> Star Wars movie. Yeah. If you're into duels and lightsabers and the whole action, the saber work is stuff. incredible and hats off to the actors for putting in the work. Would recommend. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible. 100% incredible. I, the little girl that they got to play the younger version of Leia was incredible as well. She did a fantastic did a good job. Yeah. Essentially, every interaction between her and Obi Wan uh, tugged at the heartstrings. Yeah. Oh, you seen? So. I sent photos. I was. I won't lie. I was in tears, dude. <laughs> I cried like two or three times in that finale. But you got to think when I was a kid, dude. Sure. I was so emotionally invested in Star Wars. Like that was my thing when I was a kid. You know what I sure. mean? So I have like a a very intimate connection with it from my childhood. So Absolutely. it was an emotional process for me. So if you're into Star Wars like I am, man, you will not be disappointed with this finale. It is fantastic. I have to mention too, Luke is in it very briefly, but there are some other actors uh, in the series and, and some and really cool cameos, really good characters, really some new characters that I think that will stick with, with folks too. Uh, the third sister in particular, and without giving too much away, I really like her, yeah, her, like story, her story, her trajectory yeah. as a character. And I think she'll have a lot. I hope they do to more to play with the, the story. Yeah, there's, so. there's, it's heavily rumored that there's going to be a second season. They haven't announced it officially yet, but I, I would say look, look to that, especially with all of the hubbub that they're getting within right. the coming weeks, for sure. Absolutely. And this, this, the season finale itself, I believe, was their highest rated episode. Well, and with, um, with Vader, you know, and this just being right after um, Revenge of the Sith and stuff. The, there's so much to play into Clone Wars with Ahsoka coming out and, you know, filling up some, like you said, some loopholes with that stuff. So right. I'm really excited to see what direction they go with everything. And the thing, too, with the character development with Vader and specifically, you know, as Josh said, where it left off with episode three is essentially it was him becoming Vader, Vader physically, you know, them resurrecting Anakin. And you never really saw that character development. Well, this is definitely the start of that. Yeah, Where you absolutely. can see the rage manifested, where you can see the ruthlessness. Right. Where you can actually see how strong he is. And it's just, you know, we were having this discussion too a few weeks back is people don't realize is like dismemberment affects midichlorian count of Jedi and Sith. Right. And so like, just think how strong he is right now. And he's literally has no extremities. Like it's all prosthetics, essentially <laughs> right. like robotic prosthetics. And he's still powerful. Right. It's insane. So we yeah. can't, we can't talk it up enough. I told you we'd riff on that until Doug got in our waiting room. So Doug is in the waiting room now. So we're going to welcome him into the conversation. I'm excited. sir hey man what's up i kind of want to start our conversation today with kind of whenever i first met you so like i think the first time i i, I know i definitely met you through the dress for a funeral guys joey and yeah. i were really good friends and and uh, i had moved in with brandon approximately or close to about that time as well and i actually went to middle school with ford so i was always somewhat connected to ford ford was my best friend in middle school whenever he came to av and he good moved away so yeah, Ford, Ford's a character for sure. And then, of course, his Uncle John was in the band with him, uh, McCarver. Yeah. I was all tight with all those dudes and partied with them a few times. And then, obviously, Brandon and Joey and I stayed pretty connected after all that. 
but uh, I think like I sold you like a guitar pedal or something. So then that oh, kind of yeah. like forced us to talk a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that, for that point on, we basically, anytime we saw each other, we would just, you know, chat it up and yeah. I knew you like movies and I like movies. So that was always something we could always bond and connect over and, and music. Yeah. We'd always see each other at shows. And so I say that was about 2005, 2006. Oh yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Cause like, man, like, I do think it's weird. It's like, I don't know if the guitar pedal is the first time I met you, but I know it's the most significant early meeting. If that makes <laughs> yeah. <sense. laughs> right. right. You're like, you know, it's like, a pal, you know, maybe we were at parties or something. I was like, okay. Cause it's like, you know, so that was so long ago. It's weird how like you meet somebody and you're like, like he said, those like first few brushes with them. It's like, you know, yeah. it was like a standout moment, a standout story. Like, I remember that. Cause I remember Definitely. vividly like where we were and like, mm-hmm. I still had that pedal. I don't even know if it works. It's like, you know, yeah. you know, like put away and it like with a bunch of other gear and stuff. And it's like, I, you know, haven't taken Honestly, I probably wouldn't have sold it to you. I think I was just hard up for money at the time. Like it's like a little cheap digit pedal, but it actually yeah. had a drum machine in it. Yeah. And I would practice with that drum machine all the time. You're like the, the expression pedal doesn't work on it. And I was like, ah, yeah, that's okay. That's fine. And yeah, um, yeah. I just really wanted like some delay options and it had a, uh, harmonizer and at the, yeah. like to tool with, you know, like, yeah, like, it had like 50 effects or something like that. I want to say on it. And the, the expression pedal was very wonky. It was like, it wasn't so much that it didn't work. It was just very drastic. It was like zero to 60 oh, and yeah. there was no like, you know, attenuation on it, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but but yeah, so that's funny. That's that's kind of how we. I know that's the first time I like extensively talked to you, for <laughs> yeah. sure. And I, I couldn't and, tell you what the rest of our conversation was about. I do remember, like, yeah, just that whole piece, like going over that and just kind of like chatting. I think we, I think we talked a little bit about us, our friends, and how we how we knew them, and so on and so forth. But yeah, so anytime I saw you after that, we were just always chopping it up about movies or music. I know that you went to. Where did you graduate? So when I was a kid, I uh, I grew up out near like you know the old mines driving oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so i grew up in that area that's i find it easier to just describe that than the rest of that just undeveloped yeah. area and try to describe that but right right so like not too far for brad sexton so brad and i literally okay. grew up together and oh, okay uh, yeah like so where brad grew up and i that's where we were but my mom ended up remarrying some guy after my dad passed away and uh moved us down to uh bunker missouri like I oh grew, shit yeah I thought this area had nothing to offer. I was yeah, grossly yeah. unprepared for that, man. So I yeah, bunkers. Yeah, that, like, that's Southern Iron County, right? I think I, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like yeah. fourteen or fifteen. You know, like it was tough because like I would had just I think I was like just starting my sophomore year or like just kind of into my sophomore year of high school, and uh, so uprooting at that age was kind of weird. And then moving to like this, I was this like little metal kid that like you know I was like all into like. Metallica and like just all, you know, just shit like that and you know of course new metal was raging so all the stupid fashion was happening like the Jinkos and all sure. that shit yeah I'm down here in this like podunk town with like all these cowboys wearing Jinkos and like just like not just not blending in man. it was a very hard <laughs> right. time but you know like generally like I just always like try to treat people like people and so like you know like you're too much of a douchebag or something for me to like connect with you and like so that kind of got some mileage and it was a very small my graduating class was like 26 kids wow yeah it was wild to just uh to just go through that but i mean it's like in a lot of ways it was crazy because like we just had like 
run of the mill. Like we'd do whatever we want. Like there was sure there was like one cop in the whole town, and he had like, <laughs> hours. Like he'd be yeah. like, "Oh, it's like eight to five today, guys." Like hopefully there's not crime at seven. Yeah, yeah. nobody <laughs> fucks around at six p.m. because I'm loaded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's just like you know, I guess really county and state patrol, and even then, I mean, it's like that's all population based, so there really wasn't a lot of that. Right. Like. I don't know, it was like 300 people in the entire town. So it's like you could just do whatever you wanted. And as long as you weren't causing any kind of damage or threatening anybody, you were good to go. AV was a little bit bigger, but yeah, I can kind of relate to some extent. Small like, town vibes. We, I think we had like 75 in our graduating class. But that you also have to take into account, like we had kids from Bellevue School District. They basically, there was only up to eighth grade in Bellevue. So they got yeah. the option of coming to AV or going to Caledonia. And Caledonia was like a graduating class of like 30 right. as well. Small so school. yeah, very small schools. That's a lot of small schools down here really that people don't realize. Like they hear those classes and like they think, well, that's, that's how many was in my first period class, you know, in many cases for a lot, especially like Farmington, Fredertown, North County, those schools that are a little bit bigger in population. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane. funny. Like I think, you know, it's, I, you, it's weird how like you look at stuff like that and your whole life is like this series of things that you're constantly like, am I, you know, you look at the moment and you're like, man, this sucks, you know, or you're, you're angsty about it or you're pissed about it for yeah. your whole life. And then like you have like these moments where you're like, I don't know if I'd went to a bigger high school, if I would be where I'm at now. Like right. That, for sure. Like having that smaller class, like created more of an individualism, you know, like you had to like, for sure. you really just had like more like autonomy and you could do more and you didn't have as many like groups and social structure. And, right. Right things like that to influence the person you are and like sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad but it's kind of interesting that you know you think about it in that perspective like that those weird things you're like man fuck bunker why do i have to live down here this is bullshit. <laughs> and then you're yeah. like you're like well you know what like i got to like do all sorts of stupid shit and be rowdy as i wanted to be nobody cared you know yeah, yeah when you're a kid you're just too busy like worried about like i can do all these things or i can't do all these things and it's this long for me to do all these things that i want to do and you know as far as a drive's concerned or whatever which is kind of interesting because that's going to pivot into some of our talk today, you know, like oh, yeah, yeah. how the music scene uh, in particular. And I know that you did your thesis project on that. So I do want to hit a little bit on that for as well. But I don't want to overlook things that you did before that. Did you go to school at Mac for a period of time? I did. Yeah. So I grew up um, just, you know, a poor kid with an imagination and I could draw. So I would just draw all the time and basically you know like i played music for a good chunk of that time too the, the drawing was my first love and all of my teachers were like yeah you're gonna be an artist I'm like really right. like yeah you're gonna be an artist like, what's that mean like i don't i don't <laughs> yeah. know any art like i grow yeah. like everyone in my family is very practical people nobody nobody does anything creative for a living like i've yeah. it was unfathomable to me to grow up to think that like you could do any of this and make a living at it and um you know, I'd watch movies and I was so fascinated by the mechanics of it and was just in love with movies. And it's yeah. just like, oh, well, you know, like, of course, like, it never dawned on me how, like, it has to be broke down in so many pieces. I'm like, oh, you just build a robot right. and it works through the whole movie. Right. You know, like, right. you never, like, know that's, like, all this other shit going on. But, right. oh, yeah, cussing or no cussing. Sorry. No, you're oh, good. Oh, no, you're, you're good. good. Yeah, yep. okay. right, we yeah. are an explicit podcaster. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've already cussed a couple times. I'm you like, got to know that I couldn't keep it in. <laughs> I know. And I have one of the worst mouths. And I'm like, luckily, I'm surrounded in a space where I'm like, hey, all my coworkers, you know, we're good. We just cuss all day. It's I'm the same way. Yeah. 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 Similarly, right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I just kind of was, you know, I drew. They're like, you're going to be an artist. I said, 
you know, like, what does that mean? What do, what do you mean? I'm going to be an artist. Like, yeah, you know, go to college for it. I'm like, okay, like, sure. So yeah, I ended up enrolling in Mac and I thought I would be a comic book artist because that was like, I love storytelling and I love the serial aspect of it. And, you know, even though I know this conversation about superheroes is one that it's just, I'm so tired of having and sure. <laughs> about our current climate of like superhero movies and everything like that, which I don't entirely hate, but I'm also kind of burnt out on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like those characters were kind of like, you know, larger than life characters and like they had such rigid rules and there was such a drama and structure to like Batman does this. Batman does not do that. This character does this, you know, and very relatable. Like, you know, Spider-Man, of course, for a teenage boy, like, I, you know, connects with a lot of teenage boys. You Absolutely. Like, yeah, I get this guy. Coming yeah. of age character. Right. And so I really thought that that's what I would grow up and do. Like, you know, I just loved art at a young age and always have like all sorts of uh, just any kind of visual art had always been appealing to me. So I thought that I would just grow up and go do that. So when I went to college, it was really funny because like I enrolled in Mac didn't have a damn clue so i graduated high school let's just say the early to mid 2000s i don't want to put too much on a cap on it because i'm filling my age these days but (laughs) uh, (laughs) yeah i ended up uh it was computers were still kind of in their infancy for like a lot of design work and everything photoshop was still in its well it's you know infancy for like really taking hold of where it would go and so everyone's like yeah go to college learn photoshop that's back when you had to do that like you couldn't just get on youtube and like oh i'm gonna learn how to be a designer right. and you know they're like, yeah you'll make six figures doing this you'll make really good money and i'm like okay this sounds cool it sounds like i already love doing this i'm gonna go get a degree in it so i got to mac enrolled in graphic design and when I got to my first class, I sat down and they're like, here's how you operate CAD. Yeah. And I'm like, that's <laughs> graphic design. Not at all. I'm like, what is, yeah. what is this? And they're like, this right. is for designing engine parts. I'm like, why is the class called graphic design? And they're like, I don't like, I don't know. I'm like, well, graphic design's like illustration and like photo work yeah. and right. Right. You know, like images. And they're like, no, here it's CAD and it's yeah. developing parts for cars. Right. And so there's a real big disconnect and they're like, well, you might want to go to Jeffco or whatever. And so, yes. you know, 18, like I said, no real like leadership in my life. Like none of my parents, like none of my family had graduated high school. Nobody mm-hmm. had any idea. Like I had nobody to mentor me in that sense of like what you do when you're an adult or like right. how to like handle your finances or job prospects or career orientation i had no idea what any of the shit was i was making it up as i went along so i have all this you know this class i'm in and i don't know what the fuck i'm doing and they're like telling me go to jefferson college and i'm like this is a huge like this isn't just like going across the street because things aren't working out this is like a pretty substantial shift you know i right. found yeah. my way down here and was like like living with people and stuff and so i ended up just like okay well what can i do and i shifted to this general arts degree and it was mm-hmm. it was cool because it was like that first moment where you like you look around and it's kind of like that like you know like you find yourself with a group of people you're like okay here's a bunch of weirdos that are very similar to me that have yeah a lot of similar tastes and things that i like sure. First time I ever felt like, like what kinship is, and you're like, right, you know, right. having people be like, hey, have you ever seen this movie? It's super fucking weird. I think you would like it because you yes. like this sort of stuff. And you're that first moment when it's like more than just like one friend from school that like is into yeah. weird shit. Instead, it's like yeah. now you have like a whole room full of people into weird For shit. Sure. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. So I stuck that stuck around with that. Ended up I was about a semester away from completing my associate's degree, but I was just so broke. I had my my family was like. We were very, very poor. My mom had gotten divorced from that douche. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we were just like, I mean, I just grew up so poor, man, that I was like, I had no backup plan or nothing to fall back on. 
and it got to where it's like I just had to work like I had to go get a job I had to figure something out and like figure out how to be you know like survive basically so I ended up pulling out of that because it felt like it was going nowhere and I was having this daunting it was like 2004 2005 2006 and I'm like watching my friends with like these very pragmatic real degrees yeah. not getting jobs because the economy was fucked up yeah right and just being like you know it's like dude you have like a you know a arrow you know arrow what's the uh designing airplanes aeronautics aeronautics yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like i had friends with degrees with that with like perfect act scores and shit and those guys oh, wow, were, yeah. they, like this was a smart very smart intelligent person with no like aspirations to do anything artistic or sports related they're like no here's a here's a fine career that will you know i'm smart enough to go do and yeah. uh like watching like guys like that not be able to land jobs was really like disheartening and being like man i, I guess i just like this is i'm just gonna have to make do with what i have maybe i'm not cut out to do you know to do any of the stuff i thought i was gonna do like maybe this is all just silly shit so i need to get into the sure. work and so you know i just started working and it was like all sorts of bullshit jobs that you do and then right. ended up going to work at the prison for a really long time down here which is a huge employment place but it paid well for not having a degree and at for that the area yeah, and for yeah. the area. So I ended up doing that. But then that really just kind of gave me room to start being able to afford to buy photo equipment eventually and like video gear. Yeah. And like I ended up working, you know, at the prison and doing all this stuff and sure. just paying my bills. And man, I hated it. It was not for me. I was there for a long time, like sure. way too long. Wasn't me, but you know, it's like I was a good problem solver. So that tended to actually go a lot further with like everybody on both sides of that argument when you're in a situation like that where it's like hey this guy's level-headed and he makes decisions that are fair so it's like for me it was kind of weird but i hated every second of it sure and i finally was like man i just gotta fuck i met a friend of mine like i started going to this film festival in austin texas and my friend's mom is that fantastic fest that you're referring to yeah 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 my friend's mom she had a baby when she was 16 Hmm. and she grew up super poor and she, you know, was like early fifties and she's like, had this beautiful home that she paid for by herself, had a great job, had all this stuff going for. Her. And she's like, I didn't go back to college until I was in my thirties. And she's like, don't give up on like anything. And she's like, you know, go just what you have to do is, and it's something I always did, but it's like, I guess at that point, I just kind of lost sight, went all in on something instead of executing it, like a bigger strategy for myself. Right. She's, you know, and she said, yeah, I went, you know, I went to college late. I got a degree late. She's like, and I didn't let that stop me. And she's like, and you're a smart guy, you know, you can do this. And so that's what I did. I went ahead and looked at programs that I could hold and sustain while I'm working as sure. I looked at your like a uh, program for like uh, after like full-time adults kind of thing they have. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't able to go to the campus or anything like that. Hold that down. I know some people that did and you know, it, it's, it's Hats really off cool. to them. They can do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really cool school, really supportive and gave me everything I needed. And that was a lot of the stuff that, you know, I was looking for. I really, after the Mac situation, getting a little older, a little bit wiser and a little bit smarter about my, you know, be, you run out of like that energy to fuck off as you get older. Like instead right. it's yeah. like these decisions have to be a lot more deliberate. And if not, right. I don't even know thought out as a word that's fair to describe that I guess wise is right. really the only way you could describe it. But yeah, I thought, you know, like if I'm going to go back to a school, like one, I want to make sure it's, you know, this is after like ITT tech and Rankin and all those tech schools went out, went under. Yeah. Like I knew people. Lost with their accreditations. Yeah. I knew people with these certificates that were just like, all of a sudden it was valueless, but they right. still owe these massive nothing. student loan debts. Mm-hmm. And right. it's like, this is a really fucked up thing. So I'm like, okay, the school needs to be old. Like if I go to a school, it needs to be like an, 
in like an establishment. And so yeah. that was kind of the thing that I ended up looking with Lindenwood. I'm like, the school's 200 years old. Like mm-hmm. it has turned out people of like reputation that have went on to do things. Definitely. So like, I feel like, you know, by choosing this, if I'm going to go in depth for this decision and try and like pick up this back into my life and do something better than what I'm doing, part of that would be like, you know, having to pick a school that would back that up and, you know, actually have the support to do so. So I ended up doing that. And I, instead of taking film though, to that answer, I went for a mass communications degree. And this is also wisdom teaching me this. When people hiring you are looking at your your resume and they're looking at your diplomas and stuff, if they look at something too specific and art driven, they immediately write it off. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like you could be super brilliant, they see you have a film degree and they go, Oh, he only knows how to make movies. Right. 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 No, it's that's the thing that happens for sure. I've yeah. I've sat in those type of meetings and those type of conversations have taken place. Yeah, you put boxes on people as soon as you see it. So something right. like mass communications, you learn how to do that within it. But you also learn radio, you learn writing, you learn general communication skills that are a lot broader yeah. and reach deeper. So it translates a little more broadly than it would if it were just a film. Degree. Just film, right. Yeah. And I mean it's the same with like graphic design degrees or whatever sure. it's like you know it's like you start to really like put these like collars on yourself that like impossible employers just love to fucking use against you when they're trying to hire you because ever learned it's like basically interviews are very similar to just about any financial decision a person makes which is like give me any Absolutely. excuse to say no you know it's mm-hmm. like not that they're being rude but it's like the the harder it is to say yes the more that you've broke through multiple barriers to get to that point. Yeah. Right. So that's something I wish like 18 year old me had known, but instead I had to learn <laughs> it from like years of getting fucking beat up around well, every corner. You learned it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, but there's people that go through their entire lives and they don't learn stuff like that though. Oh no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I see it all the time where I see people like just spinning wheels and I'm like, Hey man, all you gotta do is like take a step back mm-hmm. and reevaluate yeah. the choices you're making. And think like, hey, you know, I need to just put together like a really fucking rock solid plan for the person I am and want to be. Right. And it's a lot harder and it might take fucking years. Like when I was in college, dude, I lost friendships because like I didn't have time. Right. You had to make those sacrifices. Right. Yeah. It's like I was doing, you know, I had times where I was doing like such a heavy workload for school that I wasn't able to like, you know, even like get a a proper amount of sleep over top of holding a job. And it was one of those things where it's like, oh, and then when I did have time, I'm like, hey, I'm going to work on this film project. And that would consume the rest of my time because I had to keep sure. that heartbeat going or else, you know. Absolutely. And I'd have people be like, well, all he cares about is, you know, making movies. That's the only time he wants to hang out with me and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, sorry, I thought you were my friend and I actually would want to, like, work on this cool thing. It's a fun idea. But, yeah. yeah. And then that's another hard lesson I learned. It's like, sometimes, like, you know, your friends just don't want to do the thing you're into and that's okay. Right. You know, like, well, I know that there's a lot of other things that you did, too, in the midst of, you know, this, this gap, we'll say, between, we'll, we'll just say Mac and Lindenwood, too outside of your work and the job that you had the profession that you had but you did flex that creative muscle you did things like music videos for bands i know you yeah. did stuff for like broke neck i believe uh, i know you did stuff for crush it to death you mm-hmm. did for i don't remember what iteration it was at the time but it was either firebird suite or cork Brushfield mutiny i mm-hmm. believe you did a video for them as well yeah it was for cork Brush. and then I, I know that that led into or at least close to timeline wise whenever you did the dirt cheap competition for the commercial yep. and it, it seemed like you kind of just started to pick up momentum with at least knocking out small projects when i say small like in length you know things like the commercials and then you did the abc's of death submission for m is m is for microwave so i know that kind of the dirt cheap i as far as my remembrance of it i think i sent you a message about the competition initially whenever it was going on or several people might have been hitting you up and i was like hey man this might be an opportunity who knows where it goes but it's at least something you can add to your portfolio that sort of thing you know it went a lot further than i expected it to go i felt like (laughs) i was too i felt like i was too green at that time to have like that kind of like you know to even like finalize on that i remember being like yeah. Man, this is 
was like the first commercial I've ever made. You were in the finals season. too, right? Yeah, yeah it was like a selection. Top yeah. five thing, and it was like you know yeah. being there was a whole lot of shit with that that I won't get into, but let's just say like it was pretty easy to hack their voting system, and I found out after the fact that the guy that won had just like rigged the whole fucking thing. Uh, it was the worst it. commercial of all, all the five yeah, of them, yeah, I, from what I recall. Much more deserving than that guy, and not just myself. There were other like projects sure. I looked at. I'm like, this is really good. Like, how do you do that? How do you do this? It's super good, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it definitely was a situation where I'm like, oh, okay. But it gave me that like confirmation. Like, sometimes you run into that where you're like, there's a moment where you're just like, am I even like especially like things like this some of these projects like you know they take so long to gestate and finalize and you watch them so many times mm-hmm. that you the ups and downs of it no longer connect with you anymore like you have yeah. a hard time like really like you get so in lost in the woods you're like is this shit even fucking good like does anyone even like it like you're so tired of watching it that you're just like you could never watch it again and be totally happy like i used to wonder that i would go to screenings of movies and like the director would be there but like he wouldn't watch the movie right <laughs> and i'm like dude are you not like i'd be so pumped to watch my movie with a crowd and they're like yeah yeah i, I can't do that you know like i there's you know like it's just too yeah. stressful to be in that room and like right and in other times you know they would just skip it all together and then show up at the end and do like whatever intro or whatever and you know yeah. like i couldn't understand that and now i 100 percent do because it's just like you've seen it so much it doesn't you know you don't want to see it again you'd like really hope the crowd enjoys it and that's what you get but yeah. I, I think that goes into anything in the arts though to, in some degree like that's kind of one of the reasons i stopped drawing because whenever i would reflect black back on it or revisit the work like i would always just look at the imperfections of my work so it just like i know it's gonna sound hilarious but it legitimately would piss me off because I would expect myself to do better. Like I would like have a, a minor rage fit internally. So I was you're just like, you know, I got to stop yet. this, you know? And I am a connoisseur of movies. I've never made anything movie wise or whatever, but you know, obviously being a musician, been in bands, that sort of stuff. And then there's a creative input that goes into the podcast stuff. Like, because I edit the podcast, produce the podcast, I have to listen back to it. But like, I'm not like wanting to hear myself talk for two hours, you know? <laughs> right, right. Like yeah. everybody thinks they sound weird too. Right. And then like oh, some, something will get kind of like in your brain, like you'll just start to get a bugaboo about a particular thing. Like that's just annoying the piss out of you that probably nobody else hears. Like like whenever I'm interviewing people, you hear like clicks of the tongue or something like that. And it'll just drive you up the wall while you're editing because you're like editing out like 40 clicks of the tongue. And I know that that goes into the filmmaking piece as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always tell people when you're cutting something like, hey, you like that? song they're like yeah i'm like you're gonna fucking hate it yeah, yeah you're exactly. gonna end up not liking it but the, by the time you're it. done you're gonna yeah. be like that song yeah. can fucking die never want to hear it again <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like it could be your favorite song and but like you know three weeks of cutting something to it you're like i am so sad i'm never hearing that for the rest of my life but you know you yeah, get tired of the repetition of the same thing over and over i'm kind of learning that myself i'm kind of a self-taught graphical artist i've self-taught photoshop guy and just started playing with after effects and like animating and stuff like that so yeah mm-hmm. i know what you mean like even like 10 second clips watching that over oh. and over and over you just want to delete it you're just like this is garbage sometimes in my opinion the shorter the form the more you experience that is right like you, i could cut like an hour-long piece and it's not as like mind-numbing as it is to cut like a 30 second piece that you're right, just like right. you know because you're like i don't have as as long as the flow's working and everything's like like has a good pace to it nothing feels weird right you know you can kind of let things breathe a little bit more on a longer piece but on something 30 seconds like those minute moments and they could just beat you to death when you're tired of hearing it and next thing you know it's like what i call frame fucking like the next thing you know you're like looking at 
can I shave a frame off this piece or a, like a frame or two off the side of the shot? Can I, and next thing you're just like milking, like, like whittling it down to where it's like barely enough breath for like someone's eye to catch something. And yeah, it's like, it's yeah. So I, I feel you, I feel your pain. Monotonous. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, how did the ABCs of death submission thing come together? I, I know that they kind of publicly, I think through social media campaigns, online postings were kind of soliciting for, people to make some submissions is that how you stumbled upon yeah it was like when did that first one come out 2013 i think, I think it was 2012 yeah sounds yeah, about right or 2011 so i didn't know they did one for 2012 until like it came out i didn't know they did a, a call for a similar thing so like that whole film project you know and i'm more speaking to the audience barrett because i know you know this but the concept behind it was like a series of producers from around the world so like aunt timpson in uh, new zealand uh tim league who runs the alamo draft house and fantastic fest up here in, in uh, austin texas and a few other people got together and were like we want to represent worldly filmmakers we want to kind of cherry pick people who maybe are just burgeoning is like you know people that you would notice or people that maybe haven't had an opportunity to be given like a highlight mm -hmm. or showcase for their work like we're going to give them like a few thousand dollars like the budget was criminally small for each of those segments i think it was like five grand but we're going to give them like five thousand dollars we're going to assign them a letter at random from the alphabet and the film has to be themed around that and so that was the idea behind it and so when the first film t was for toilet that that, that yeah, bit. yeah, like, yeah. You know, that guy was like just a guy. Like, you know, he's went on to have like viral success and all that since then with like the Pingu thing thing mashup, and you know, he did the video for Gunships Tech Noir. Like, he's done yeah. some really cool stuff. But at the time, you know, like I didn't know that that had happened. That they did any kind of call out. So when the second film was coming around, they I was able to catch that they were you know looking for films for this project, and so uh, we ended up. You know, I had this idea for like a really stupid gonzo, like early Peter Jackson's like splatter movie, just like a splatter comedy. And it was just the right amount of immaturity to be like, hey, this is super reckless uh, content <laughs> that's not <laughs> safe. And I'm going to go ahead and do this thing that has like subject matter that's not appropriate. And we're going to go buck wild with it. And so we produced it and we shot it and submitted it. And it wasn't selected. Um, I'm trying to remember which one was. I think it's just like... Uh, it's a guy down in like Miami that did bath salts and it was kind of like a one note joke piece of like a guy just like tripping yeah. on bath salts, like trying to eat people's faces and stuff. Right. And, uh, it was pretty funny. I mean, I think it kind of in, in hindsight, I think it used the short film format in a really interesting way. Cause I think if I remember, like, I think the films had to have a five minute maximum runtime. Like you couldn't, so you couldn't really do anything super like ambitious or anything like that. But no. he was able to really just get in and get out, make a point, not overstay his welcome, like do something, that's, you know, sometimes shorts work really well for that. I was, my earliest ones tended to be that a lot more often where it was like, Hey, how can I lead up to this punchline? And Definitely. often felt like that's all it was doing. Like my earliest stuff always felt like it was lumbering towards the finale of the film and not worrying about setting up too much at the beginning to where it like paid off in a much more like, like rewarding way right satisfying yeah. way and that's kind of a thing that like i still to this day feel like that you know when i'm writing that i'm like trying to like work in a little bit more like how can i put pieces you know things that really like enrich the film experience before you get to the end more so and uh 
so we ended up doing that and uh man there was so many submissions for that i really couldn't even tell you like a final number i don't remember because that's been a minute too like 2013 i, I think that com- the concept was that those producers made the selections right there wasn't a fan vote from what i recall with that and maybe memory isn't serving me correctly or maybe there was a percentage I don't of audience there was a fan vote but i do think there was some kind of process that determined who won I don't recall how it ended up shaking down, but uh, when it was all said and done, I mean, there's easily hundreds of submissions for this. And, you know, some people you could very much tell, like, horror wasn't their first love. Like, it was basically just like a... And I see that a lot with, like, these contest things that, you know, especially back then, and it was a criticism that, you know, like, I still hold to this day, but you just don't see, like, contests like that as much anymore. I don't know. No, you don't. It seems like that that should be more accessible now, especially with, you know advance of social media and so on and so forth right yeah and it's like i'll meet like a 22 year old kid that's just an absolute killer man like and it's like they've grew up on youtube and they know how to execute all this stuff in such a like wonderful technical way that you're like fantastic and like you know their stories are fresh and they're able to like give you a film that doesn't feel amateur you're like i can't believe this was done for like eight hundred dollars with a group of friends you know it's like incredible you know there's a kid out in um can't remember i think san francisco or san diego that I became friends with and like through him just like liking the stuff I was making and he would be messaging me and like I'm like you know hey you know hey he sent me a couple of his early shorts yeah and I'm like you know hey how old are you and he's like 15 oh he's god like 15 and he's like making stuff wow. like dude this is so good for being 15 like, this <laughs> yeah. is and like now he's in film school and like he's at UCLA or something like he's doing so good for himself and then like he's got a feature out on Amazon Prime got Fangoria to cover it and I'm just like dude and wow. he's like yeah, he messaged me and he's like, dude, I wouldn't have even known who Fangoria was if it weren't for you. And I was like, that made me so happy to respect. I'm glad I could just put you two in the room together. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. like this publication of like respect can cover your film and like talk about it. And I'm like, that's such a cool thing. But right. yeah, it's like that whole idea of like just young people now, like you said, these contests, because imagine like if you held something like that with like just like the talent pool that exists, like Absolutely. You know, a lot of people out there just like turning out such incredible Absolutely. work. And kind of the advents of technology even too is it's everything is so accessible. Like anybody can shoot, you know, a high quality film and edit it nowadays for little to no cost. I mean, even, I mean, your phones come with free software to edit film and, and even some films. I I remember it was like about that time, about the time this came out, even I think some of these submissions of the anthology series were even shot with phones, but you know, I I remember it became kind of a thing. Like I think Chanwook Park was working on a film that he shot entirely Mm with an iPhone. And like, that was a big stir. Did iPhone time. itself have a project where they were having people shoot commercials for their oh, phones yeah. or whatever and using them as commercials? I think in the last, I don't know, four years maybe, I've seen a lot more of that in a more like higher profile way. Right. I don't yeah. remember if back then they were doing that. I know they were doing a lot of like photos taken on iPhone promotions, but I know like in recent years they've had like, uh, I can never remember which guy, one of the directors of the first John Wick ended up doing like a whole action set piece. I know Zack Snyder did a short that was shot all on iPhone. The John Wick guy, that was an official iPhone promo. The Zack Snyder thing was just like a, hey, you can do this. And of course, Steven Soderbergh shot like two or three features now on iPhones. Yeah. And um, Tangerine, have you seen that? Yes, I have. It's excellent. Yeah, it's so good. And it does prove that theory that like if your story is rich enough, like I preach this to all anyone that'll listen. I'm like, your camera doesn't matter. Like the right. camera's the least important I mean, and it's not the... The, ca- the camera work and the, the camera quality, you know, the 
it, it adds to the character of the movie and the storytelling. It actually adds a grittiness or realness to it, so it actually right. works in feels, that in that instance with feels more real, right? Because it is a gritty story, really. Yeah, it's not overly polished. It feels a little yeah. raw, right? And you know, had you, they shot that with like the best quality things, you wouldn't have got that out of it, right? And you know, it's like, but it is very much a tool that you know what you pick really is dependent on what you're trying to say. Like you know, you don't want to shoot like a high key like really beautiful fashion piece with like super accurate colors and stuff like that that you're worried about no. something's not going to service that right but vice versa you don't want to try and shoot gritty with something that's going to be too perfect and i kind of see a lot more of that these days than you know it's like you you see people trying to be gritty but things are lit so fucking beautifully you're just like this is yeah, you can't it's like this is gorgeous like what are you trying to like you, yeah. you, see, you tried to make taxi driver and now it looks like oh very i know linden, you know <laughs> like what are you doing yeah that? yeah i know uh, that's hilarious so I know that some other of the stuff that you did too creatively was like kind of just making some short films for fun. And I know like you did kind of a, a looper spoof with your kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, which was awesome. I loved that. Uh, with the, I think they had Nerf guns at the time or maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, it was like a toy. Instant. Nerf like shotgun. Yeah. yeah. That was really well shot as well and, and edited. I, I know it wasn't too long, but... Yeah, oh, that it was, was super short. It was like 15 seconds, actually. Oh, it was that short. Yeah, okay. it, was just, it was just that piece from the trailer. Okay. Cut it down, yeah. And That's it, cool that to, was like, to incorporate your kids into it, too. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Into yeah. It. yeah. Sometimes, you know, I, I love to include them and stuff, but sometimes it's also like the biggest headache. I'm like, why do you yeah. keep sure. Why do I keep casting yeah. these children? and stuff yeah uh, yeah that thing was so yeah fantastic fest coming back to that that you know like a quick thing for that you know i have a friend named andy Triefenbach. he runs a late night program in st louis for genre films so like horror science fiction exploitation so you could see everything anything from like uh coffee or something like that to like night of the creeps like whatever like you know just there's kind of it's kind of a broad spectrum and so andy's been doing that since like 2010 and that's how i came to know him was through joey rackaman so yeah i think you know one more plus one for you there joey on yeah there you go but i was like well this guy is screening horror movies and it's like i was just you know i just love like for me i love being able to see older films i never had the chance to see in a theater like again you know for the first time or again if i hadn't seen them in a long time because like sometimes like you know if you ask me like something like the first jurassic park never gets old like I oh can no oh sure no yeah, yeah. i could go see it in the movie theater like every week and Absolutely. still never get tired of that movie right and so i just don't believe in the idea of like old movies and new movies i think that's such a silly thing like because it's old no. i'll never watch it in some people's mind and it's like no man like i there's so many old movies i discover that people talk about and like hey you've never seen this you really should see it like uh, sorcerer was one that like i saw a few years ago and was just like this is such an incredible film and people really need to see it so like i'm out i tote that stuff as much as i can and andy gets that so there's been movies like rolling thunder that i'd only ever heard of and never seen that andy booked so my first experience ever seeing this film was blown up and in the best presentation possible yeah yeah and just to go through that and be like fuck you know i would never see this movie in a theater now and it's such an incredible thing but Andy, we'd talk about movies and he would be talking about, you know, it's like, well, you know, I saw this at Fantastic Fest and this and this and this and this. And, you know, it's so fun. And it's like, you know, to me at that age and at that time, like film festivals were like these like proper posh experiences that were super pretentious and super. Well, you huge. hear the Tribeca's of the world and so on, yeah, you know, Toronto film. Like yeah. Right, you think it's so unattainable. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's just so high art and like that there's no room. He's like, No, no, like this festival only plays the kind of shit you're into. 
and like you know it's super lax and it's super casual and they have their own set of rules and there's like this respect and reverence for the movies but there's also this like treating the filmmakers as real people and not putting them on a pedestal like you know you might you know you're just watched a really badass movie and you're hanging at the bar and the director's next to you eating queso and you're just like hey man love your movie and like it's that simple and there's just such a like you know simplicity of like taking people and putting them on such a you know like recognizing their hard work but also not putting them in an awkward spot where they have a spotlight in their face and camera flashes and dumbass questions from junkets right and you know he got me pretty good on that i'm like damn it's like those all played there it's like yeah so we kept doing this so 2014 i was like all right fuck it i'm going I'm, i'm just gonna fucking go i'm gonna make it happen and so i did and it was an incredible experience it was you know exactly that you go there and you're just like the first screening you have at a festival like that where you're surrounded by people who truly fucking love these types of movies they go like you get reactions that are like rock shows like you know like when the bad guy gets there come up and the whole crowd pops and goes fucking wild and you're just like I don't get this back home. <laughs> That's the movie experience. That is supposed to be the movie experience right, right there. That's the reason yeah, exactly. people go to theaters. It's it's a kinmanship. Everybody's in the moment together. Everybody's locked in, lockstep. Right. You know, I don't want to gl- I don't want to run away from late night Grandhouse too much. I'd highly recommend anybody who hasn't went to a gr- late night Grandhouse uh, showing. I think they're mostly doing it out of the pair now, right? Yep. The Which cinema out there. So I, I've been up to, I've made it out to one uh, up there. I saw Ra- Cronenberg's Rabbit, which Cronenberg is probably my favorite director of all time. So oh, it, yeah. it was really awesome to see it in that, in that setting. And that, that's a great one for that. Yeah. That's a perfect example. It's one of those older films that, you know, a lot of folks haven't seen. It's early Cronenberg work too so you can kind of sell you can see the machinations at which he was about to become a director and some of his film work and some of the implementations that he took and approaches however he wasn't quite there so there's a little bit of an unpolishedness to it there right. that is into and a quirkiness to enjoy so but th- these are the opportunities that they're creating at late night groundhouses to see films even notable directors in some instances like this in in these settings and i also like that they cut their own trailers at the beginning to create mm-hmm. an awareness of other films of that ilk too i think they had uh, at that one of the trailers in particular was the uh, hunger the david bowie yes. film yeah. Yeah. yeah so that that was that was really cool and it's not that they they pull from trailers that that are out there. However, they're not necessarily going with the a real trailers that you might see. Like, let's say if you were watching TV at the time, you know, this is like, you get that feeling of the direct to video releases that you used to get at video stores and that sort of thing. And you would like, let's say demolition films, you go in and get a direct release and you pop it in the tape player and you see all these trailers for movies that like pique your interest, but you can't get your hands on them. Right. You know, it kind of recreates that sensation. Yeah. So it kind of captures some of the, the magic from my youth in particular. So Late Night Grandhouse is just creating that whole experience. And then also they have the displays out front. They have Criterion Collection stuff that you can buy. They've got posters, artwork, masks, merch. So they've got something for everybody at these. So definitely go check out Late Night Grandhouse if you get the opportunity in St. Louis. But uh, back to your Fantastic Fest business. I've got my Chaos Reigns shirt on from... Oh, yeah. that Actually... That entire thing, yeah, that whole thing was born from that festival. Like, it's, you know, it's in the movie, but, like, the whole, like, zeitgeist aspect of it, Mm -hmm. you know, like, there's so many things that you're just like, fuck, you know, like, Black Phillip, part of that really bore from that playing at Fantastic Fest. Like, everyone, and then A24 was just like, oh, my God, like, Black Phillip's playing, like, gangbusters to these crowds. Like, he's a character of himself in himself, and, like, that just, you know, there's so many times you're there born for, like, these really weird movements that you're just like, 
okay, like I've been present for like two memes on the internet where you're just like, okay, I was I watched that happen and now it's a meme and everyone that, people <laughs> yeah. don't even like know any idea about anything or sharing it. You know, it's like your forty year old like aunts sharing it, you know, like me in social gatherings and it's Michael Myers and you're like, I remember being there when that like at that moment yeah it's such a cool thing you know like it's just yeah. a cool thing to be like this is you know it's it feels like home when you're there that's the best way i could describe it it's hard to like think of uh, not going you know and missing it for anything i know having gone to fantastic fest it also created great networking opportunities for you and you built some at least you know kind of pen pal type relationships with some perhaps even directors or filmmakers that people know nowadays i i know you've spoke on with me in personal conversations the guy that's involved with like the hatchet movies uh, in particular yeah. Yeah. I know you've had some correspondence back and forth with him. Yeah, yeah. So like Joe Lynch, I'd talk to him, uh, Greg Bishop. Like there's a lot of guys who have done like, you know, smaller budgeted horror films that have been so like kind to especially early on, like share feedback on my films. And it was like a definitely like it was a scary thing, but it's like also something like young you is like more brave to do than like you older know, you. Yeah. Yeah, older you is like, man, I, I'm not gonna send my stuff to that guy. I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, whereas like twenty something years like, oh, I finished this movie, man. I'd really love for you to check it out. And it's like, Yeah, sure, man. And you're like, you you know, now I look back and I'm like, Man, the fucking audio on that thing was trash. And like Yeah. You know, my light looked like shit and like I wrote this part like shit and like the fact that they watched it and they didn't tear it to pieces, you know, I'm just like Right, and we're kind to like you about real, it, right? Yeah, like they were so kind and, you know, give me great notes and like mentor me in some cases and say, you know, hey, you know, next time you're doing a shot like this, think about, you know, this and that. And again, this is like, you know, in some cases like 2009, 2010, 11 and there where it's like a pivot towards information on the Internet becoming just so like vastly available. You know, you would send your film and you're like, you know, and to this day, though, like I, I've had people express this where there's like there's not. You know, there's YouTube all day about how to light a scene or how to, you know, yep. get good audio or how to do this and that. But there's no like, you know, like what behind the scenes were for us on DVDs growing up. Where it's oh, like, yeah. oh, here's how we made this movie. And it was a total bitch to make. And, yeah. you know, rain when we were supposed to be shooting this outside scene and we had to move it inside. Right. Yeah. You know, all these like things that like, you know, commentaries. And I still it's sad that physical media is fading because like young filmmakers, I'm like, hey throw on that favorite movie of yours and put on the director commentary. You're going to be taken to school on like what it's like to, Definitely. you know, you know, to be entirely home. different. Yep. It's like, I always reference like, you know, like girl with the dragon tattoo has some of the best, like the David oh, Fincher yeah. one has some of the best film school in a box shit you're ever going to get. Cause it's like, here's a hundred million dollar movie with a list actors, Academy award winners are nominees in some cases, Academy award winning director and there's shit that goes wrong on every fucking scene in that movie. And he's just like, Oh yeah, this is this. And this is a dude who's known for his perfection. Right. So when you're right. like, and that was revolutionary to me. Cause I was a person that's like, you know, if something went wrong, it was the end of the fucking world to me. I'm like, Oh God, what do we do? What do we do? Like the movie's going to fucking suck, you know? And you right. would just fall apart because like the idea that it had to be perfect front to back, and there was no room for things to like not work the way they were supposed to was like completely unfathomable to me. Like they had to work that way. And seeing this guy who's like known for all these things, it was like, this guy has everything. And like, he still has to make concessions to his films. And like that, like let go of a lot of stress for me as a filmmaker to be like, Hey, like, you know, sometimes you just Don't gotta, sweat the small stuff sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes you just got to think on your feet. And honestly, to this day, like that's a thing that I'm always like preaching to younger filmmakers, like number one above anything you want to call yourself. If you're not a problem solver, get the fuck out of this because it's not for you. Right? Absolutely. Because that's all, that's all you're going to have yeah. always. 
and it's like you got to look at it as a series of it's a train leaving the station and the wheels are falling off and you have to do your fucking best to keep it on there and so you're constantly it's like a fucking cartoon where you're running and you're putting shit back together as it's falling apart and you do that until you get to the finish line you're managing situations you're managing personalities you're managing personnel you're you know if you got a dp that is going rogue on you you got to reel them in you know, you got an actor who's wanting to flesh out their character acting machinations on the rest of the cast behind the scenes, Jared Leto style. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you've you've got all these situations that can present themselves. Hey, you know, everything. We're getting a Morbius too, goddammit. it. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's Morbin time. Yeah, Morbin time for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's like with that, you kind of have like even a simple like thing. Like I've heard a director once say like those first like two takes for most actors he's like they're completely useless he's like because they come in and it's like they've been up all night like thinking about their Oscar speech yeah they're like oh this is going to be this is the scene this is the the scene they're counting the chickens before they hatch yeah and then they get in there and they're like they're just giving you too fucking much and they're not playing in the pocket they're like trying to like steal the scene and you know then you're like okay you done fucking around okay (laughs) you done fucking off Let's fucking do it. But then I've heard the reverse of yeah. Nick Cage where it's like, I've heard like the dude who did crank did a movie called mom and dad. And I talked to him at fantastic fest one year and he's like, dude, he's like, I'm telling you cage is part of his contract. Part of his agreement to do a film is that you give him one for him always <laughs> like every take, every setup you, you, you know, he'll play the part. He'll know everyone's lines. And he's like, and he's right. He, he does. He comes in. He's the one of the most prepared actors you'll ever know. Sounds like a total Nick Cage thing. Yeah, he's he's a total expert. He's a professional. He comes in and he just gives you exactly, like, and he gives you so many options. He's like, and then that Cage take comes up. It's like, and it's fucking unpredictable, and it's wild, and it's crazy, and he's like, it's like just because it's like he is so spontaneous that you're just like, what is this? And he's like, and guess what? We use it every time. Yeah, because he's because <laughs> he's genius. I've heard right? him talk about Even it. It's crazy. It's genius. You know. I've, yeah. Well, you got to think of what family he comes from. He's a Coppola, right? Also, so you know, blood. it's just yeah. it's in his blood without question. A lot of people don't realize that, but Francis Ford Coppola is his uncle. Sophia Coppola is his first cousin. Roman Coppola is his cousin. So he's he's related to the entire Coppola family, and that he changed his name because he didn't actually want to be. He wanted to be strike out on his own, essentially. Nicholas Cage. I watch a lot of those. The Hollywood Reporter roundtables. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw sure. the junket that he did for pig at that round table and he was he was talking about that he said that, you know essentially he just wants his scene so he can explore and push the boundaries of the character and see where it goes you sit down you listen to him he's an extravagant guy but you know you can see that that shines through in his work who he yeah. is his personality and often he's landing in the right spots, you know, so hats off to him. I know he's, you know, made a run of bad movies and stuff and kind of got a bad rap, but he really is one of the best actors ever. Yeah. We're going to see a cage Absolutely. I can't wait to see him himself play himself in this new uh, that movie Pedro Pascal really, movie. Really fucking good. I have Pedro not watched Pascal, it. It's, you're going to love it. Pedro yeah. Pascal's so good in it. Like, it's he's just, slowly becoming one of my favorite actors. Dude, he is. He's yeah. fantastic. He's coming from Buffy, for him playing the crazy... But the vampire, do you remember that? I don't. There's some know. clips of him playing a vampire in Buffy, man. And it was a just, background character. He was in that. Yeah, was, no. yeah. He really was just like. But a, you're a Buffy fan. I would have thought you. I think known it's that, Buffy. I will, I will find out if I'm wrong. I will let you guys. Are you know. sure it's not like <laughs> True Blood or something like that? Let me look. Let me look. You guys go ahead. <laughs> All right. But, yeah. Like I've been working on a movie with Tony Todd, and I'd always heard this theory, and I asked him about it. I said, you know, is it true? Like he comes into a scene, and he, then he goes real fucking big. 
like real big. He's just, you know, I always heard he like comes into the scene and he's grabbing shit off the table and he's like walking over and like opening a window and doing all sorts of crazy shit. And then he like keeps refining that down until it's like exactly what it needs to be. He's like, you know, he's like, he's like, dude, you know what? He didn't, nobody come out and said that when we were working together, but that's exactly what he does. Yeah. Like he just comes in. It's like the reverse of cage. He comes in real fucking huge at the beginning and he just keeps bringing it down until it's like finally like in the groove, like in the moment right. it feels organic. And it's like, he's like, he's, it's, he, you know, it's, he talks about jazz a lot and he's like, like his feeling is like that jazz, like musicality where it's like, you know, your body's the instrument. So it's like, you're feeling yeah. the scene and you're feeling the pace of the scene and like how your character should be in that moment. Like, to, right really represent it and I, you know i was like damn i was like well, it's so fucking good <laughs> like, it's, like, it's like i love to fucking hear that man yeah what's your results on the buffy search Joe? oh yeah the buffy search uh pedro pascal played edward the freshman okay. in several early episodes of buffy so high school age or at least played 1997 wow holy shit that's yeah, wild that long like that's incredible oh sure enough oh my god don't show me we'll that send again. you this we'll yeah we'll, see, we'll show you this app, uh, post uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's uncomfortable. To, to some people he's an overnight success you're gonna you know like that yeah sure is the thing where it's like that man's been plugging away at this shit for 30 years oh yeah for sure he stole my heart as the viper in game of thrones that's when i really yeah i mean that's went head over that heels on breakthrough him. role for sure yeah for sure yeah there's always that moment where you just have the right character the right screen presence right the right, right. focus for something and like people are like they, it's kind of like that girl in school when you're in like eighth grade that was just like the girl you never really and then you're like when you're like damn like wow like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What happened? Like you're really pretty. Like all of a yeah. sudden you just see it. Like like right. the light is your face just right or something. Yeah, right. a lot of guys yeah. don't believe me about the girls I claim. So I know what you're saying, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is Barrett from the ATI podcast. Each week, Josh and I discuss current events, pop culture, music, TV, movies, politics, sports. Nothing is out of bounds. You can also tune in to learn about rising artists, small businesses, whether it's music, graphic design, filmmaking, or even a brick-and-mortar mom-and-pop shop. We'll be spotlighting folks and their endeavors. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Anchor, or anywhere you enjoy your podcast. Just search ATI Podcast. We would like to thank you for your continued support. And as always, please stay safe out there. So I want to get things back on track with you, Doug. Specifically, I know that you, as far as your thesis project was concerned, I alluded to this earlier. I wanted to kind of get into this because I know a lot of our development and our friendship through the music scene and people in the music scene, myself included, yourself included. But what what led you to making the decision that you wanted to do Bang the Drum, the life and death of the local music scene specifically? What, why was that your thesis project? Well, it's interesting because like I moved down to this area like the Farmington area and to go to Mac in 2003, 2004. And I remember like, I had this friend Kevin and you know, I still do. I'm still friends with Kevin, but he, he's like, Hey, you want to go to a local show? And I remember looking at him and thinking like, what the fuck is a local show? What are you <laughs> talking about? Like, and he's like, yeah, he's a local show. A band's playing. I'm like, what? Like you just, like, you know, like to me, like it was, there was either guys in coffee shops with acoustic guitars or fucking stadium shows or you know nightclub shows like right. there was right. no in between <laughs> this idea of like like a rock band like a five-piece rock band like out fucking just playing somewhere 
was kind of like bewildering to me. Like, you know, maybe it was like being sheltered, but the, just the idea of someone just being I'm like, well, what about the fucking PA? What about the, how are they solving this issue? And he's like, like, they're just, you know, he's like, just fucking play, come on. And it, I remember the show so vividly. It was a band called uh, House of Heroes. Do you remember, do you remember those House guys? Of that Heroes. name sounds it familiar. It sounds super familiar. Yeah, they were from like Columbus, Ohio or something. And the show was on the back of a, uh, of a, like a. Flatbed trailer? Flatbed trailer. Yeah, yeah. flatbed trailer in front of the skate park. <laughs> Yeah. That's okay. awesome, dude. Yeah. I think I was working at Earth Mother at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. I yeah, do recall like that. There's like 60, maybe 70 kids here. And I remember thinking, like, there's a fucking audience for this? Yeah. Like, this is not, like, you know, like, and they played and they played their hearts out, played their asses off, you know? And I remember being like, holy shit, like, this is really cool. And then finding out there's more of this around here. And started going to more of these local shows and like checking out some people. And then, of course, like Brad and Joey, I grew up with those guys and they're playing shows down here once in a while. Because, like, the first time I ever saw Brad and Joey played, it was at uh, the Hard Rock Cafe in St. Louis, which more fit the bill of what I'm like, oh, nightclub shows. Sure. Right. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah. And then they would be playing down here in like a coffee shop or something. And I'm like, what? What? Like, okay, like, so it was, like, it was super kind of strange at first, but neat at the same time that these bands were, like, just making anything into a venue. Like, if you could fit bodies in it, and it had electric, we're going to give it a go. We're going to, like, do our damnedest to just, like, kill this space as much as we can. Nature Cup shows. <laughs> right. So I ended up, you know, really, like, going to a lot of the shows, meeting a lot of people. It was really kind of, in hindsight, it was really inspirational, but then I remember this, like, shift that started happening where I, you know, initially I kind of was like maybe we're just all getting older you know maybe we're like we're older and their interests are changing people are like getting families or having kids or moving away or getting jobs or whatever because you know it's a kind of like reflection of what's happening to yourself you tend to put on the world around you a little bit more but then it was just you know there was nobody taking those seats like there there was like maybe like a because by the time my understanding is like by the time i got here i think there was more or less on a second wave of bands yeah. Like, you know, like 98, 99, 2000 was like its first wave of like inflection of like these bands that really left the mark on the area and really kicked this whole movement off. Right. And I met Calvin McRoy and Calvin was a huge part of that first wave. And, um, you know, and I'm not to leave anyone out. Like, I, I know how the scene could be because like the scene drama, yeah. what it is, but it's like there's far too many people to mention right. in one space like this. So, but but personally Calvin was the first guy that I really connected with in this sense and it was funny enough it was not really about music it was about movies but uh yeah well he's a he's a movie head like the rest of us he's a huge Peter Jackson yeah. fan and so yeah. on and then so you know I started meeting you know guys like yourself and Ridge and everybody and you know I'm like oh these are people you know more my age and like similar interests and people are starting bands up and would be in two or three bands and you know I played and you know I'd always tried to get bands together and I had such a hard time like with the ego part of it which is the funniest thing because it's like now I could get a film together with like 30 people on it and there's like it's not an issue right whereas like when it's you're dealing with like four guys in a room and it's like everyone's egos are so out of control you're just like okay like i just really want to like fucking play and have fun yeah especially at that age that we were i just want to make something cool and like something like that you're proud to share with people and i just you know i guess it was just never meant to be and i ended up noticing though as social media really started to uptick and more of our lives moved online that a lot less of our entertainment involves going out to places or going to experience things. Like you, right. it's more of like, Definitely. there's more deliberation with our time management than there used to be. Like I remember, you know, 
when you're 23 or 24, it's like, you're just like, fuck, it's Saturday, three o'clock. Like, why, what are we doing? Right. Yeah, like, absolutely. Why, why am I here? Why am I at home? Like, why are we doing this? Like, and you know, of course the best thing about the, 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 the local shows is that you didn't really have to have a lot of money to enjoy it. Right. Right. Correct. Especially if you knew somebody. Yeah. Or even you knew somebody and they're like, Hey, come in. Yeah. Right. You know, like anything like that, you know, maybe you could get you a couple beers or a slice of pizza or something. You know what I mean? And like exactly. 20 bucks can carry you a fucking long way on a Saturday for the local scene. Hell yeah. yeah. And it, you know, it was like one of those things. It's just like, I started noticing a lot less of that, a lot less of support. And you could point fingers at a lot of different things, but to say that it was dying and eventually did die, I think is a pretty fair assessment. You know, I would hope the love to see it come back in some capacity. Definitely. But I also think a change in music taste is a huge responsibility of that as well. Like I think the current climate of music is a lot more electronic based and a lot harder to produce live. If you're not, you know, if you don't have the backup support to do it, right. like, whereas like back then you think you could have a shitty rock band and like, it's a shitty rock band. It's still a lot more than like trying to get out there and like, you know, like rap to your fucking like, you know, iPod over a PA and like hope <laughs> right. that people actually give a shit about what you're doing that's even outdated now they finally killed off the ipod <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's like just trying to like you know find a way to like you know it's like steps away from karaoke at this point where it's like you know the way you're doing it's like it's just losing a lot of it's like artistry you know you're starting to see like we're moving back to like what disco did in the 70s where it just became this you know vortex of popular music that just eliminated like it just was like this you know, omnipotent thing yeah. just like overtook, you know, we talk about seventies rock with such reverence these days, but what people don't realize is it was counterculture. Right. You know, Definitely. a lot of like, you know, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and the stuff that were just like, these guys are icons. Like they were small pockets of success and what was otherwise just a completely like one, you know, an artist with a single, then they disappear Right. for so long of the seventies and into the early eighties, you know, that there was such a, even the nineties had that. Oh yeah. 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 Like pop music, you know, it was hard for artists to have any longevity. And I think now with this current climate of music, you're seeing more and more of that. You're seeing a lot more of a, an artist shows up for one song and they probably don't even release an album in some cases because there's this push to just get away from the idea of albums at all. And that you just release music as it it gets made, which is sort of bizarre to me because like I've always seen like business of the hits. Yeah, I feel like we're old man yelling at the cloud situation where I am certain without knowing you, Josh, I know it's a generalization here of just knowing you for a couple minutes, but you're probably someone who appreciates the concept of an album. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the idea of like, we're going to curate this selection of songs because we love it and right. we really like we had 50 songs and we whittled it down to 30 we whittled it down to 12 because these best represent what we want to say with this one release and like the idea of me and just like you know post mullen drops a record a, a single tomorrow and then maybe three two months from now he'll release another single and then another single a couple months from now but you never actually get an album that's just strange to me like it feels like you don't well really that's see that that's definitely the way the music's going i had a high school friend brian jones who's jesus rose he's an r&b artist now on the west coast but we had him on the show a few weeks back and he was he was talking to me you know that's kind of the approach he's had to take that's the way the music industry's gone as he's putting out these singles i see it more so in the pop in hip-hop in r&b and emd type trends of stuff you know the stuff that's getting that top 40 radio play right. sort of thing right. but there's mm-hmm. still a there's still an undercurrent of movement of bands you know oh, touching yeah. on the things that we're talking about there's the kurt viles of the world the mac demarcos of the world you know those people i mean you have to put out a single to to tease what you have coming obviously i mean that's that's what you do however there's still an appreciation for full album release there's still old vets like dinosaur jr that's still doing it too you know so there's a little bit of everybody you know everything you you, you kind of have to play the game though that's that is the game nowadays you know you have to play the single you game. have to change 
times. It's definitely a case of where if like, you know, you want to be very rooted in this philosophy that's changed and or died, like you're going to go with it. You know, it's just how things have always been. I know getting the film together, you kind of put some lines out on social media initially too. Yeah. We had a lot of discussions during it. Uh, we set up a place for you to shoot some of the interviews at, at one of the yeah. hotels I managed at the time. There was a lot, I know there was a lot of discussions. I know I saw a lot of background chatter and stuff, but in even recently it came back up in some social media exchanges, but I know that you had some restraints with this project. You had, you had yeah, time yeah. frames that you had to work with, length of time. So mm-hmm. not... I just want to speak to and elaborate on the point. We kind of glazed over this earlier. You yeah, yeah, you were so handcuffed cool. in what you could and couldn't oh, do and sure. who you can yeah. meet with and when you can meet with them. I mean, even I, I'll just use myself as an example. And, you know, we had set time aside for me to sit down and do interviews and submissions, but it just didn't work out because of what other stuff that we had going on. Yep. And I didn't, I wasn't able to circle back around and like get you right. because like we, we had such a truncated like shooting time. I mean, what most people don't actually realize is, documentaries can take years literally Definitely. years we're talking it's not like a cycle of a narrative film because with narrative you control everything that's put getting put in front of the camera and so you get your takes you get your day you move on until it's finished you edit the movie and you release it documentaries tend to have you know a lot more scheduling conflicts a lot more like long drawn out gestation periods to develop it and you know sometimes i mean i know people that have worked on documentaries for five or six or seven yeah. years for a single release and you never make any money at it ever like documentaries are probably one of the least grossing concepts ever there's very few that have like really made anyone any money but to tie the two threads together on this conversation i really think you know like i always say like i remember being a kid and there was behind the scenes there was a great behind the scenes in jim henson's labyrinth on vhs mm-hmm. the movie would end it would and then this would come up and i remember being like I love that. Like I wanted, I like, I was obsessed with like that. I wanted to, like, what he did, like this, you know, love of music and, you know, acting and combining these pieces together. And I knew who David Bowie was. So it was like, you know, I'm like this guy's an actor, he's a musician, he sings, but he also is doing this movie and this is fascinating. And it's such a strange little world that was created from nothing. Absolutely. I got a little bit older and I remember watching Panic Room in the theater. And I remember thinking like, this is, all in one room like this is doable yeah it was the first movie i ever saw that was like really like no you could tell a story in like a very controlled space like it's not unrealistic yeah. and around that moment and then in that same kind of period it's like the music scene was starting to kick up and i remember like going to that stuff and there was this period of time where i was like why am i like why do i think i have to have permission to do this like why can't i i can just go fucking do it Right, like it, it could suck. It might not be perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better. And then, at the time, there was a lot of like you know you looked at like you know you look at like trauma and all these guys who have been just like scraping these little movies together with nothing. And I remember thinking like you know like that's I, I mean I could do this. Like I just have to figure out the pieces and how to do it. And so in a lot of ways, like the music scene like really inspired me to do what I do because like I said like I didn't have that or any like mentorship to lead me that way as a young person like I you know fuck around and try and make stop motion movies I would film stuff with camcorders like I always had a camera in my hand a video camera specifically and but could never really make anything to like show like I was never like I was always kind of embarrassed it was always kind of a private thing where I'm like this shit kind of sucks you know what I mean we'd watch it watch with my friends or something but we would never like you also didn't have platforms to share the stuff you were making right. and I ended up circling back around to this idea of like you know the time felt right like we were enough behind the music scene this is I'm trying to remember 2018 maybe right sounds right yeah it was like 2018 and I would say like the last 
you know, bastion of the music scene had probably, had truly, I mean, like, there was still some artists kicking around in the early 2010s, but not really shows. Yeah. You know, it felt like, it felt like there was a lot of that had dried up. A lot of the venues wouldn't support the artists Definitely. anymore. And it seemed like there was just, like, the most important thing, which, again, is that platform to, like, showcase what you do was gone and these people are just kind of in the rooms recording music and trying to get it out there and trying to get people to listen to it and I remember thinking like you know there's enough time to have passed to really make a statement about something that really mattered to me and I have a different lens about it because I wasn't so engrossed in it I wasn't in one of the bands not really I wasn't like you know dating anyone in the scene or like there was I didn't have this like you know I had this like very outside looking in like lens on the Mm -hmm. whole thing I'm like you know I feel objectively that the story has potential to like really be more about like not our music scene and i think that's where some people have misinterpreted the film yeah and unfortunately like i can't control how those people view things that's the nature of the beast like some people watch something and they and the more local or regional or more like they can reach out and touch it it is like the more like think about how many movies get released and like the locals to the area like those accents are bullshit we don't sound like that fuck we even do that here yeah you know you're like you watch ozark and you're like right, ozark. yeah you know and it's like and it's like but you got people in like canada that don't know shit about about it they don't give a fuck they've never met anyone from missouri and they don't give a shit right right so you know i'm not making the film for like the like maybe 30 people that'll get pissed off right. because it didn't fucking mention their best friend or whatever you know that's a situation where it's like you know i'm making a film about it wasn't just our music scene as time went on i really learned that like this was happening all over the country yeah like we weren't the only ones with a music scene there were you know it was a vibrant thriving culture that existed across the nation in these small towns where like this Columbus, Ohio thing. Maybe that band was maybe a like club band that I saw that night that was kind of cutting their teeth, you know, and like really yeah. just playing anywhere they could. But there was a lot of this. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this wasn't just the death of what we had. It was the death of like, you know, an entire subculture that just evaporated because something replaced it. And that's right. what we do with idle time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Previously, if you were 16 and you're fucking in your bedroom and you don't have a computer and you don't have a smartphone and you don't have shit, but you have a guitar, what are you going to do? Yeah, you got to exactly. find your outlet, right? Exactly. So, you know, and I, I think that that whole thing is like permeated into like even adults and you see it like with like the political space with social media you see it with like things we focus on as a culture now it's like putting all the energy we would use into something that would be much more expressive and we're like pushing it we're ven- like we're funneling it into something that's just like not really useful and, and becomes toxic because it becomes this like bastardization of like an expression that you wish you were doing and yeah, yeah, sure. yeah what ended up happening with the film is like it finally come up and like we were putting together the thesis for what our classes would be and like how to wrap off our degrees and like you could do this you could do this you could do this you could do a documentary prior to that i'd never i've been like you know it's like idea of doing a documentary i'm like i haven't found something yet but i feel like i want to tell that kind of because to me documentaries are really about it's really about the personability of a story like it's really about you really want to hit it's more on just like entertaining people it's more about like really like informing people and sharing something that's like kind of like touches you in a much broader way and in a much more human scale where it's like these things like you know it's like i feel that in my heart i understand what they're talking about i miss this thing and i miss this you know and not just this thing but like even if you didn't know the music scene and you didn't know any of these people and that's the important thing like when this thing was finished I'm, I'm screening this thing for people who have no idea who any of us are right and like you know i'm screening it for people who like you know other professional filmmakers who they're watching it and you know my editor is not even from here she was from like two hours away and like my co-editor and i told her like the rules for cutting the, the interviews down because like when it was finished even with the people we did have we had like 10 hours of raw interview and 
cut this down to 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. And so and it's, there's so such funny things you learn from doing things like that and doing talking head pieces and cutting people down. Like you start to, you learn like your first interviews, there's interesting things that be that are said and then you start to find like, oh, that's the meat I'm after. And then as you keep cutting it down, you'll start to realize that everybody's kind of saying the same thing a lot. Yes. And then you start to look at who says it the best way or the, the way that like is, you know, just works best for this moment. And then you keep going and you're like, okay, now this is all fucking gold. Like every piece I have is gold. Like right. our assembly was 10 hours and then our initial rough cut was an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, goodness. An hour and 20 minutes. And that was actually pretty entertaining. Like what was in there? There were mm-hmm. a lot more specific stories and a lot more focusing on like vignettes and like little moments that happen. But then it was, we started sacrificing some that weren't as strong and you started to really just get left with like one or two. It didn't feel like it belonged anymore. And so we ended up cutting those pieces too because like, you know, at that point, then you have like one really good story, but it's tangent to the rest of the theme. You know, by that point you're like, okay, this feels like it's kind of an aside to, you know, tell the funny story, but doesn't actually make things any better right and i had like a 20 minute time limit i think we brought the film in at like 18 minutes and like some change it was like right up to right under right up to like you know right yeah. at like capacity for what i probably could have got away with a little bit more time but i was like eh, i don't want to like make thing. <laughs> but yeah so it was really more about trying to capture a feeling and a, like a nostalgia for a, something that wasn't that long ago really like, you know, yeah. it wasn't like it was 30 years ago and we were like little kids and it's like looking no. through a lens. It's like, no, we were, you know, fairly like adultish, like enough to know, like, you know, having jobs and have responsibilities, but also like needed this outlet. And so whenever, you know, I finished the film, we screened it, went really well with everybody. We ended up screening it at the uh, St. Louis Filmmakers Showcase. But yeah, I mean, it is a really funny thing, Barrett. And it's like one of those things that's been a life lesson with me. And it was probably also, I mean, I've used this word a couple of times today, but definitely a revolutionary moment for me because there's things that happen. So when I did the call to action for everybody, I was just like, man, there's going to be, cause the thing that's really hard about that era is it was pre smartphone. Yeah. So there wasn't like Snapchats and right. Facebook videos and things to pull. Like, You're going to rely on physical media that people had in their possession still yet. Yeah. The amount of people I, I knew the, you know, like I would go to the shows and I don't know that I would see a single video camera ever. Right. Not usually. You know, like some of those shows like you would go to and you would never see, like it would never get captured. It was like, it was, it lived in that moment and it died in that moment. Yeah. And when it was over, like it was just a memory. That was it. I remember putting that call to action out and like, Hey, you know, if you got this and I had a lot of people step up and say like, Hey, I would love to talk about this. And then early on, I was really just going to try and fill out as many interview possibilities as I could, because typically in the situations you run into like, maybe like maybe this person or the person isn't as articulate, but they'll have something good to say about this or this. And I could use that piece. It just kind of filled the screen up with so many people was the idea, like have so many people represent the scene. And what I got was what I got. I mean, and in some cases, and it did come down to, I did have a very tight timeline and, you know, there is stuff like, you know, like yourself, I had like probably two or three people that really, really wanted to do it and just things got in the way. Well, people need to keep in mind, you already laid this groundwork earlier, but you were working full time. You're going to school full time. You were also doing a la carte jobs. I know at the time you were shooting stuff for the city. You were shooting stuff for me, for my businesses. Yep. Yep. You had beyond a full plate for yourself, but you had enough of a full plate for two or three people. So you don't have to make excuses. You don't have to give anybody an excuse. I'm speaking for you right now and I'm going to speak something (laughs) else for you right now too. And that's, if you're giving this man a hard time still yet today, you're holding on to shit and your problems with you. 
Right. Quite frankly. And I know some of that backlash you got too was people wanting to live another 15 minutes in the sun. Right. Quite frankly. Right. And then yeah. that's not what the intent of this this whole thing was. I no, think kind of the story that you captured on the essence of it was this was a phenomenon that took place in this small town. Maybe it took place in your small town. We're trying to discover the reasons why theories were thrown out. But we left. it was left for interpretation for the viewer. And I like movies yep. that don't yep. spoon feed you stuff, even short films, whatever the case is. And, right. and you did not, you know, you did not think less of your audience. You did not, you know, demean them in any way. You you made the decisions in the viewer's hands, which that's the mark of a good filmmaker. Right. So. I would agree. And I mean, and to that point, I mean, Barrett, like if we made, if I'd made a film that was literally just people talking about the good old days. Oh my God, come nobody on. Nobody would want yeah. that. Right. Nobody would want that. It's too specific. Like, I mean, like, yeah, like us down here, like, you know, maybe like fucking 30 people would watch it and be like, oh, man, yeah, I remember that. Sure. Dude, when you're screening that to an audience of like 200 people, they don't give a fuck about some, like, the time Joey, like, well, sorry, I'm not. Well, let's use Joey. Joey won't care. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's like Joey Rackavan, yeah. The time Rackavan drank 15 beers, man, and he pissed on that thing. I made that story up for the record. Uh, I'll tell you a true one. Nobody's going to care about the time Joey showed me his dick and said, hey, I got some bubble gum stuck on me. That's exactly what I'm talking about where it's just like, you know, like the broad audience doesn't care about that information at all. Like it means nothing. Their eyes glaze over. Right. Coming back to my editor, I just told her, I was like, hey, if you don't know what they're talking about, cut it. Yeah. That's, that's a great decision. Like it's someone who lives two hours away and has no investment in this. I said, Hey, you know, she cut, I cut interviews. She cut interviews. And once we did that, like hour and 20 minutes, hour and 30 minute, whatever string out, um, I told her, I was like, from here, like, if it's stuff that starts to, like, doesn't make sense to you, like, you're listening to it and I don't know what they're talking about, cut that, yeah. because, like, you, you are my general audience and you're my editor. You're my person who's watching this from a completely uninformed point of view, and what the documentary should do is inform you. Right. Like, if you, you know, you should never have a moment that bores somebody with something that doesn't matter. Right. And so, you know, it was really, like, I charged her with that duty, and she did. There was a couple times where, like, we fought about choices. Or I'm like, no, no, I really love that. I really love that. She's like, that's to be expected. Yeah, and she's like, I don't, I don't love it at you all. You were also closer to the material than she was. You know, right, you had a relationship with the material. So there's that right. to be considered as well. And I'm sure there's a discovery that takes place too whenever you're doing things like this. You're interviewing people, you find new information. You know, there's probably some leads that you got from interviewing people that unfortunately you couldn't chase down that probably would have added to the documentary as well. So Oh, yeah. If they, I mean, if there were like other people, like had there been maybe two or three more document like more people interviewed there's a good chance some of that stuff could have been more fleshed out yeah. but you know and everyone that interviewed gave great interviews so i'm not worried i'm happy about that like i'm glad that we were able to cover like you know musicians we were able to cover fans we were able to cover fans who became musicians yeah. on the scene i love that we had such a broad stroke of people to talk about you know people who are a little bit older people who are a little bit younger mm -hmm. uh, you know a lot of people who just had like this great just worldly experience within the scene and like really enriched the, the people they were and that they were you know and it's like some of these people like know of each other and they're not like they're not friends per se like it's not that they're enemies right. they right. just don't really know each other you know like like yeah i know who that is but i don't like we're not best friends or anything right. but it's like the fact that they know each other so says a lot about what the scene was to a lot of people is like to finally get that film made you know like i said it's like we played it it went really well with the crowd and putting it online and being able to share it with people i was you know it was a great time to really release it. and it really it's life that's the most important thing i think people have to realize is that a film has a lifespan for itself right and you know in this case it's like there come a point where i'm like this only plays really well to this local area and 
beyond that, there's no sense in me holding on to it forever, like, and not sharing it, trying to book it in other festivals that it may or may not do as well in, or if at all. Right. And, you know, I ended up putting it online at the beginning of COVID and be like, hey, guys, like, here's something to keep us busy, something to watch. And, yeah. you know, right. remember good times and shit sucks, you know? Yeah. The funny thing, though, is like, I mean, very to that point, like, you know, for all the criticisms, that stuff doesn't bother me, you know why? Because I asked people for footage, I asked people for B-roll, I asked for people for yes, you, did. you know, assets, flyers, whatever. Yes, and guess how many people came through for that? A None handful. of the people that have criticized yeah, me. Yeah, right. Not a people, not a single person that had anything negative to say about it, or, or any of the people that bucked up and ponied up and like off, offered to help make it better or offered to enrich the film. Because at the end of the day, like that's what matters. When we screened it in St. Louis and no one had seen it yet, like fucking eight people were there. Like the scene didn't make it and I don't hold that against people but that goes to like right right that like I said was like a moment where I'm like the movie you make for an audience isn't for the people who are just gonna bitch online and not do anything and these are the same people who typically really haven't done much themselves like they're always the people oh sure this could have been better but they don't actually have like it takes a lot of fucking bravery to work your ass off. Backseat drivers, my man. Life's full of Yeah, it, it's like when I see people do stand-up comedy and fail. I see people release music and fail, like, quote, fail. But I see these people putting themselves out there, and it means so much more to me now to see somebody go up there and take that fucking risk in the first place. Absolutely. Than it does for me to watch people, like, set in the comments and bitch about it. Like, these same people bitching about $200 million movies will never fucking make one. Oh, no. They don't understand what or work or spending three years and what's, working what's on their something. expertise they fucking flip burgers at a fast food joint I mean like you know it re- makes really you an expert right yeah yeah and they're mad because this 200 million dollar movie wasn't made specifically for them that's what it is right and fortunately nothing is made for you the world doesn't revolve around you <laughs> here's the newsflash like finish something whether it's an album or a comic or whatever the art form is like if you finish that and every beat of that it just rings with you to your core. That's a beautiful thing that you should stop and appreciate. Like you should really Definitely. take a moment because when it was created, it was not made with that intention. Right. It wasn't made for you, that one person in the back of the crowd. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if that's what happens, if like you're hearing that and you think to yourself like, man, like fuck, I've never heard such an amazing thing in my lifetime and I've never been so moved by this. Right. You know, I've never seen something that has just left me feeling the way this just did. Right. And it's, an, and it's left you with like this more like well-rounded person at the end of it. Like that was never the design of the person i mean that's the goal that's what they wanted right but that for you they could never have picked that that's like winning the lottery right yeah so i don't take that stuff personally like if people you know come and make some shit like if you want a better version of it just go make it like there's nobody stopping you yeah yeah absolutely make it better yeah yeah just like make your version of it that's why like you know remakes happen and it's like i don't see the sense of getting pissed off i could say it's unnecessary all day right right how are you gonna talk robocop i don't know like why make another one i don't know but they're gonna fucking do it right yeah i know (laughs) why do they remake that for sure (laughs) tangentially this like star wars argument it's like there's you know it's like i see people like arguing all fucking day about these star wars movies oh my god the problem is like exactly i'm gonna keep this very light we're not getting (laughs) (laughs) you have your star wars and then some kid has their star wars and then someone else has theirs right and that's fucking okay and it's like you know we have john carpenter's the thing right and then generations before us have Howard Hawks the thing right right exactly right. and like you know you know invasion of the body snatchers whatever yeah. you want it whatever people you want to come up with like you know it's always going to have so much more significance to you because of the time and place and the things that made you who you are like 
So I don't trip. If someone went and made another version of this tomorrow, like, I would be happy to watch it because it would be so cool to just like see some other opportunity, some other version of a story because this film couldn't hit all of those boxes. It's just not possible. No film can. And you really shouldn't. I mean, it's like having produced as many commercials and like pieces that I have yeah. now over the years. I can honestly tell you the worst thing in the world for anyone setting out to create something is to try and check every box. Like you shouldn't do that. You should absolutely focus on trying to like put your nail on the head and keep the ship steering in that direction as much as you can. Absolutely. Yeah, how did the search party pictures come together and and who's all involved in that beyond yourself? And I know that's kind of the vehicle at which you guys are putting out. And I do want to get into this into the weeds a little bit. You know, the new short film that's premiering at the Chattanooga Film Festival. So tell me a little bit about search party pictures to to start. Okay. Yeah. So um, years ago, you'll remember that I had like a filmmaking collective. It was a bunch of friends of mine that were actors and filmmakers and people who were just like, I don't know what I want to do. I just want to be part of it. And we made this little like collective called Bad Owl Studios. Yes. And we would go and we would make little short films. A lot of the stuff you talked about, we kind of put under that banner. Like I didn't know what to call it. It wasn't a real business. It was just like, you know, Hey man, like we all worked on this thing. Cause like myself, like as a, a director understands that my job is to basically just the lead of very, really, really talented group of people yeah. to accomplish something. And like, the more like skill and more like you can trust those people to like, you know, and you share the vision for the project together and you're all in on it. Like that editor I was talking about, I love her to death and I've worked with her for a long time. And to sit there and like, when I talk about arguing about stuff with her, it wasn't like we we're like blow throwing blows at each right. other. It's like, but no, it was a friendly it discourse. Was a very, like, stern, yeah. A stern, like her stepping up to me. And it's like one of those things I respect whenever it's like, not just to do it, just to do it. It's just that when you know, instinctively, you're like, Hey, look, I know that this is the way this needs to be. And you know, you on the other end are like, Hey, you know, like, I don't know. I disagree. And then like a point can be made. I'm the first person to say like, you're right. Yeah. Like, you you know, what's right for the project when someone shows you something and you go, okay, like this is, you're right. Like that works. Well, people get stuck in their perspective. You need somebody to bounce that's those ideas off of somebody yeah. to review your work. You know, nobody's above it. I give hundreds of notes a week and you know, sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong and it's never about ego. Sometimes it's just like, Hey, you know, like the simplest thing, like flip this shot with this shot. And then you're like, fuck, that works really good. Okay, cool. Or that didn't work. <laughs> Go back and do it. You know, like the way you were doing it, you're right. Yeah. With that said, search party was born out of like, so bad Al dissolved. Everyone kind of moved away, got busy, you know, jobs, the thing, the stuff. I ended up going to college and fell off and we just kind of like weren't really making as much together. And so what ended up happening was that we, uh, Ryan Woods and I, who had been a longtime collaborator through Bad Owl, but one of my like best friends in the world, and like one of the greatest assets to that entire like lifespan of that project, he and I were just like, you know, he's super busy. He's got like a crazy hectic work schedule, and he's like, you know, let. He's like, I really love this stuff, you know. And we kind of committed to the idea that, hey man, let's just create a banner 
we'll do a thing together. And really the idea is like, instead of producing a whole lot of shit that like maybe gets watched, maybe doesn't get watched, mm -hmm. whatever, that occasionally, like every so often we go all in on something we go as fucking hard. We take all the energy you would use, all the resources and all the money you would make making like 10 bullshit projects that are like really small and scrappy and whatever, and just take all those things and go all in the tank on something a little bit bigger and a little more ambitious. That was the agreement behind the idea behind Search Party. And so since then, it's kind of been like, you know, we created that right about the time I was finishing school. Like the idea was to like continue this avenue of stuff. So like really when we structured the idea of what happened to the others. So it's like I came up with the idea for the story. Ryan and I worked together to develop that story outward mm -hmm. and really kind of flesh what it could potentially be if it were to be a, a full fledged project. So what ended up happening from there is that we, you know, I went through, I outlined the idea, kicked it over to Ryan. He gave me notes on it. I went through and did a first, you know, like a... a scene cards yeah almost like storyboarding yeah to young writers man like the idea of just setting down and just fucking going is so appealing but i can i for myself because everyone is a little bit different on the process the value of taking like your outline and breaking it down into scene cards so that yeah. every scene has a purpose and if that scene doesn't have value it doesn't need to be in the film like it doesn't need to be there just to be there it's an efficiency workflow type thing you know absolutely it's when we get to the scene why are we here what's happening and then that really helps you look at the story from a top-down point of view and you can go through that first draft and really fucking build out a pretty strong, like, vomit draft, essentially, which is, I'm going to put everything on the paper. I don't care if it doesn't make sense or there's continuity errors or whatever. You just fucking just get it on the page. That's the hardest thing. And then you go through and, like, our film's really made and it's, like, later drafts. You know, that's when you really start to tighten up the stupid shit or yeah. like, oh, that scene doesn't make sense anymore. Or, you know, this character needs to be introduced much earlier or this plot point or whatever the fuck, you know, right. writing is what it is. With like what happened to the others, like, you know, like, hey, this is the thing we're going to do. So we ended up putting together some money. It was the first time that like I felt confident in myself to start like asking for people to help produce, which, you know, is offering some aspect because producing is weird. Some people always, a lot of people tend to like, including myself prior to doing this, thought producing was really just like a money thing yeah i was like, gonna make that point money for a film sometimes that's the case and sometimes it's not like it's a very loose title like definitely in some cases like producing is in most cases your very hardline producers are helping assemble the film so they're helping you find cast you know figuring out where to go to find you know wells of cast and getting these people together or they're helping you secure locations and permits and, and helping you with the administrative and clerical ends of it absolutely yeah and to be a good producer is super fucking hard because i mean it's truly who what when where why but like to a very like high stakes degree like you know you want to make sure that like if your dp is coming in from out of state that they have a place to stay they have food for the trip and they have like what they need to like survive they have all the pieces you need and that yourself you're also thinking of like in your they're also responsible for hiring the key department with you like it's to help alleviate pressure from the director on making all these micro decisions over and over and allow them to be freed up like i remember the first time i did a commercial where i only directed like i didn't touch the camera i didn't mm -hmm. produce shit i didn't have to worry about anything other than executing what we were supposed to do that day and it was so kind of surreal because, like, multiple times through the day, I would stop and be like, 
Is there other shit I'm supposed yeah. to do? Yeah, <laughs> you felt like you were not doing enough. What do I do with my hands? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm supposed to be like telling somebody something. Like this is weird. It feels yeah. weird that everything's okay. It's it's going okay, right? Because this is I'm just so used to having a million questions, and like whenever you have like a producer fielding a lot of that stuff and not like having people come up yeah. and, hey, uh, lunch is going to be an hour late. You know, like that conversation. You, uh, <laughs> it really frees you up to really focus on your shit. So when we went into this movie, it was part of it. it was like I'm going to hire. There's this kid. Uh, Austin I mean he's not really a kid he's a little bit younger than me but we followed each other on Instagram we uh discovered each other through Horrorhound Weekend in Indianapolis mm -hmm. and uh, we start following each other on Instagram I'm looking at this kid's work and I'm just like fuck he's got like it's like he has my eye like for like what I look for in an image like this kid just like mm -hmm. this guy like gets it and a huge horror fan and we spoke the language and he was just like really like one and one I'm like this guy's like a carbon copy of me but just slightly different enough to like have mm -hmm. You know, and so and he lived in Indianapolis and I was like, hey, you know, would you be interested in working on this film? Like <laughs> sending him the script and he was like, dude, he's like, I'm itching to do some like horror. I've been doing a whole this other stuff. And like he's a huge horror fan. He's got the sleeves of tattoos yeah. and just horror everywhere. Yeah. And so he came out. We put the movie together and we shot it all. And so like we shot this movie on the weekend. It was March 20th, 2020. Oh, wow. So literally shot the movie. We had some pickups we needed to get. It was kind of wild because like we ended up taking a three-day schedule and we tried to cram it into a two-hour schedule with like what's called Fratterday, which is kind of like a split evening into morning, mm -hmm. yeah, early morning kind of situation. It, it's a long fucking day to do 16 hours that start at like, you know, 3 p.m. and go till 3 a.m. Yeah, or whatever, wild. 4 p.m. Yeah. 4 a.m. Yeah, that's a total bastard move. And I feel really, really bad about that, but it was like the only way we could execute that third day. So it was like 3 a.m., we're about to go into overtime. It's March. It's fucking freezing cold. Yeah. My monster actor is like stark ass naked, basically out in the middle of a field oh, or less. Just like freezing his ass off. Everyone's shivering. <laughs> I've got this, like I got our rental van for the equipment for the cast, like parked on the side of the road, got the heat just blasting, man. And we're like filming the one side and I'm just like, there come a point we got all the coverage with the monster. So also good producers will teach you to shoot the expensive shit. The shit that's like not expensive. If you can't get it, come back if you can and grab it later. Yeah. So at that point, yeah. I shot out all of my monster shit for that sequence. And I'm like, okay, we're calling it. It's too cold. It's too cold. Everyone's freezing their ass off. We're going in too long. We'll shoot all the reverses next week or whatever. We'll get just this actor to come in. We'll shoot just his coverage from this one angle. And then we'll be good to go. And then the then COVID hit. Yeah. Everything shut down. Pandemic. Yeah. And so flash forward six months later, it's fucking like August or oh, something. God. And everyone finally feels safe enough to run a skeleton crew of like four people who are socially distanced and masked up and the whole thing. And yeah. everyone's far apart and we're shooting his coverage six months wow. six later. months after the fact yeah <laughs> good god yeah so there's scenes in that movie it's like i can't even tell to be honest even and i made the damn thing well that's good but I'm, I'm sure there's somebody with a better eye than me but there's there's several shots where i could be like march august march march august march august march march august <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. yeah and then you know we had to go back and reshoot we ended up having to reshoot the entire opening scene because it was like we couldn't do pickups on it we needed them but that location had changed too much 
like it went from being like really barren and cold in March in the field in a field to like springy and like you can't hide right like, flowers right. Exactly weather, right. Right. You yeah. Know? yeah it was too hard so we, luckily that was a low stakes reshoot so we just did that and then uh yeah so we ended up just like putting the whole film together like that it took me quite a while to found like find like a sound mixer that really thought could do the movie a really like a great job like that's kind of a hard role to find oh, like definitely. I didn't realize like like a like not just sound mixer but like sound design like somebody you can really like you know for me like I had a mix done I didn't quite love it it for me like it was missing a lot of the sub frequency stuff that you really want from a movie like the stuff you feel in the low end and like the shit especially that, like, a takes horror a lot. oh yeah yeah horror without low end is just like it feels like it's empty Thin. yeah yeah I finally got that guy and so we finished the movie but and since then like uh, we've also expanded into like reaching out into filmmakers who like fit what our search party mission is which is to like represent like genre films and take a risk on like you know horror and stuff like that but the, you have to have a really strong voice like I you know we don't take open submissions it has to be through like a series it has to be like vetted really you know it's like everyone has a script i've learned and it's really like you know if you know somebody who knows me or whatever and like you feel like that project might work kick it over we don't have like we're not rich but it's like we can nuts and bolts some shit and might be able to make a good film out of it like yeah projects just right and we can make it happen so instance like there's a local filmmaker in the st louis area named mondo frank uh, mondo franco he wrote this killer script called bruja that is about uh well so there's a big, pretty big twist in it. It's pretty amazing. It was like a little nine-page contained thriller. Mm-hmm. No blood, no cussing, which that stuff doesn't bother me, but that's a sign of a, like a hallmark of a good writer to me. It's like if you could write something that's working in these that. constraints. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that when that stuff happens, it's a release. Like you realize it's like the pressure, finally, the valve finally pops, you know? Instead of like, you know, even early me, it was like, fuck, like how fast can we get to the blood? You know, it's like now I'm like, you know, how much can I keep people on the hook and get, keep poking them? pushing them until finally like it, it pays off to let that happen right but yeah so mondo had sent me the script and i read it and was just like fuck man this is like this is perfect like this is a perfect script like i want to make this movie so i ended up dping it for him ryan and i produced it under the search party banner and you know co-produced with him and was able to make the film and it's in post-production being edited right now awesome. so like that's you know it was a really cool opportunity and i can't wait for that to finally be uh finished so that we can get it around for people to see that's like cool. it's the performances are absolutely incredible mondo did such a good job directing the film like it's it's a it's a great piece of work i want to talk a little bit more about what happened to the others too so when did you guys finally finish shooting i know you talked about some of the shooting issues and covid and everything else but when did you guys finally finish shooting that uh we did that final pickup scene can't even remember when we did that like we ended up having like covid really like slowed production and without having like a huge capital venture behind you or like there's so much money on the line that like you can't risk it when it's like just nuts and bolts filmmaking where you're like hey man like i you know have a little bit of money uh, you know, it's like, I hold a day job. I'm not remotely rich. Like, right. you know, it's like, I, we got it. Like, you know, I, it's sacrificing things for me to make a film. I have to give up luxuries that people like love to have, like, you know? Right. And so when it comes time to do that, it's like, I have to really believe in what we're doing. Like, I have to believe it's worth sacrificing this stuff for. So, you know, when COVID came around, like, it was like, you know, one, like I'd had failed projects before, not many. And oftentimes it was, it was just shit that was like, I've learned from big time. So for this project, when this came around, it was like, okay, like there's nothing fundamentally like fucking this movie up. It's literally this, this, this shit, this fucking pandemic. And, you know, I had to be humble about it and think to myself, like, you know what? There's people that are going through like the worst times of their lives right now. Right. Absolutely. Like there's people, you know, there's people who, you know, it's like my movie is not, 
it's important, but it's not the most important right. thing. Yeah, I agree. Like there's things that are much more important, you know, to my daily life, you know, you know, the health of my family, the health of my kids, the health of other people. Like it was the other things like, I don't want to get a group of people together and risk, you know, giving somebody a sickness or whatever, like whatever your status is, like everyone has their philosophies on the ship, but I really just wanted to be responsible and take care of my people because taking care of my crew and my cast is the most important thing to me. I never want somebody to work on one of my films and feel like they're being put at risk. Definitely. Or feel like, you know, they're being mistreated or treated like, you know, beat down or anything like that. Like, I, you know, and if ever that's the case, like, I, you know, express that, like, make, you know, right. like express Speak it up. that way. Because right. it might not be the case. Like, sometimes, you know, it's like you work on something like this and you're putting the hours. It's like you're not always getting everyone's attention. Like, sometimes you're just there. People don't realize, like, film sets are, like, hurry up and wait. Like, sometimes it's you know, you wait for an hour because makeup's being finished on something yeah. and then you finally get to roll yeah. and you roll for, that's a rule I have for actors also for the young filmmakers out there is actors have to wait 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half for you to set up a shot. If they want another take, give them another take. It's going to take two minutes and it might make the movie better. So like uh, trust them to have that opportunity to say, Hey, I need another take. Let them feel comfortable knowing that make them feel comfortable saying that because that two minutes is not going to fuck up your schedule. Like you've just made them wait for hours for setups. You can give that to them, let them have it. But with that said, that's one of the situations where it's like, uh, you know, we ended up coming back and doing the pickup. So I really don't remember when that was. I do know, like I did a battery of trying to get the film ready and finished in 2021 was that a self-made deadline it was a self-made deadline. oh i was trying to meet festival deadlines but i just like the sound mix wasn't there like it you just like it was weak in that sense like the sound needed to be better like the captured audio was great like there was nothing wrong with like dialogue or anything like that you know like it was we didn't have to do but maybe like two or three pieces of adr that were really really minor okay almost every film ends up with adr like all throughout in like the weirdest ways most people don't even notice sure but and for those at home adr stands for automated dialogue replacement it's where if you can't get a clean capture of somebody saying something you go back and record it there's actually a super great google this kids (laughs) there's a very awesome uh video of hugh jackman performing wolverine and logan yeah doing adr for it it's absolutely really incredible yes yeah yeah, i've seen that it's great he's like growling and running and screaming and he's like standing in place doing the punches but on screen you see like that like yeah that's exactly what that is it's very common in action films in particular or or whatever funniest things like sometimes they even hire like people who just happen to sound like those performers to come in and do like grunts and kicks and moan you know what's called efforts where they just come in and do things that are like non-verbal and you just don't want to pay them the rate to come in and just go oh yeah or they can't be bothered with it like if it's some posh british actor is gonna be like fuck you yeah you're like i guess i gotta find some 20 year old british kid that sounds like you know fucking ben kingsley how did you get this film submitted into the chattanooga film festival let's talk about that i i also kind of laid the groundwork before you got on the call today too we're going to talk about the different passes and and what that welcomes you to for people to get a chance didn't it start tonight is that correct or last night yeah tonight as of the recording is the first night there's no schedule per se like if you pay for a full badge you have access to everything save for there's a couple events that happen at a time and date you know kind of thing but you'll have that information up front not too much on the front end there's some stuff on like saturday and sunday that's you know it's typically when big event stuff at every yeah. festival's held but um so like the individual blocks are like i think it's like 13 dollars. like i know mine is 
and I think every film's like 13 a piece if you want to do like a la carte and get just like, hey, this sounds cool. I want to watch just that. And it's 130 for the whole deal. And so that's like six days, I want to say. from It's from today till Tuesday. And it's a shitload of, yeah. shitload of films. Like it's a lot. So it's one of the situations where if you were to watch 10 movies or 10 of any of these things, you've paid for that badge. Yeah. And I feel like you could probably easily, uh, you know, knock out 10 films in like five days or whatever like if you're like pretty committed to the idea of like i'm gonna sit down and catch all this cool independent shit that's on here. right how chattanooga came about was when i made this movie you know it's like for myself like that fantastic fest conversation wasn't without merit it was coming back to this where i discovered like this beautiful world of genre film festivals where it's like you know there's just people who fucking just live for these movies like myself like you guys that's just like you know like this is gonna be badass i cannot fucking wait for this they're psyched for this type of film as like you know your marvel movie guys are waiting for doctor strange 2 to kick off at midnight you know like these people are hungry for this stuff they love it they share it. it's like a second language to them and so i had like five festivals which i'll hold naming some of them because like i'm submitted to them now and if they don't go i don't want to you know again count your chickens before they hatch sort of thing yeah exactly but chattanooga was definitely one of the festivals where i was like you know this is you know, I attended virtually. I've had ambitions to go in person prior to COVID. And it's still a relatively young festival. It's made up of DIY guys who were just like, it started with like just screening in their backyards and shit. It like kept growing and kept growing until like now it's like a legitimate like media covered festival where like, you know, New York Times and a bunch of other outlets cover films that play there. And it was one of those things where I'm like, you know, these people and like just listening to uh, Chris Dorch, they're, uh, the head programmer and like the founder of the festival and like the people who work on it and then like people from the fantastic fest like programming team bounced over and was like helping them out like with like you know year i think five or something like year six was like going in there and helping them like make connections and build their festival out and give them like you know all the stuff they needed to like really grow that festival because it was like to a point where i needed it and they've continued that tradition. They've really went on to become like a voice in independent genre films in the U.S. Where it's like, you know, if you want your movie seen and you want to be seen by people who are passionate, we'll talk about it. We'll share it and we'll like discuss, you know, the things that, you know, you also love about it. And like you've made movies for these people. I myself, that is, I am a populist filmmaker. Like I like to make movies people want to watch. Like, movies with crowd-pleasing moments. Yeah, like, sure. I think about, like, you know, I took a friend to a, a screening of Mandy here uh, back in May, and he'd never seen the movie. He had no idea about it. Never even knew it existed. Watching that with, again, like, the late-night Grindhouse crowd, and watching those people just go fucking oh, nuts. Yeah. So many, like, key moments in that movie that were that just, they were designed oh, yeah. so that that crowd would go, fuck yes, and fist pump, and cheer, and, like, give you, like, back. Ex- I remember, like, uh, Simon Barrett, who wrote You're Next, and The Guest, he's from Columbia, Missouri. Yeah. And I remember talking to him one time, and he was like, yeah, dude, we did this movie, A Horrible Way to Die, like Adam Wingard and I did. And he's like, I felt like it was a good little movie, like, we worked our asses off, it was like, we were really out there, like, trying to fucking be lean. He's like, but then we would go watch it in festivals, he's like, you know, I'd be with a crowd of people, and the movie would end. And everyone would get up out of their seats and they would just quietly walk out. And he's like, I remember being like so stressed out. I'm like, did they fucking hate the movie? Like they just sat through the whole movie, like totally quiet. And you know, did did they hate that fucking movie? And he's like, so when he went to do your next, he's like, I want a movie that like you fucking know when it's working. Right. 
Definitely. Where you get the reaction. Like there's no denying. Like when you watch that with a crowd, you're like, oh shit, it's working. Or this is not working. Time to go get some beers. Definitely. Like, work this one. Right. But so that was kind of a thing that I'm like, you know, that's how I felt internally. Like I grew up, you know, like movies like Robocop or Aliens or Predator were like such integral parts of my, like I remember seeing District 9 and being like, this fucking guy is making a movie. Like this is the type of movie I want to make. Like this is the type, if you gave me like $40 million, this is what I would do. I would want something with like these visceral like moments that just like take your ass and you're like what the fuck did i just see like i get killed with a pig <laughs> yeah you know, like, exactly. that's, like that's the kind of shit that like i aimed for so when i made this film i was like looking at a list of film festivals to submit to and it came back to that like stuffy tuxedo wearing people who wouldn't appreciate the movie you know and like, maybe there'd be like three guys in the audience like right you know yeah. but then the rest would be like mm, okay that was fine it's like instead i want like those people are like oh fuck i see what you did there okay yeah Yeah. like i want you know i'm making movie i made a movie for people like myself who just wanted to like want something that they enjoy like has like you know those peaks and valleys and those like little moments like raise up and give you a little bit of like a push there and so chattanooga was absolutely in my like tonight that list of five festivals that i'm like this is who i want this to play for like if i could be in that crowd with those people this is who I'd want to share that moment with. Right. It was an absolute delight when they selected the film. Like I had been through so much making it that I was really starting to even like, like I said at the beginning of the, the interview, I was just like, is this even any fucking good? Yeah, like I can't. Existential crisis. I literally watch it. And yeah, yeah. I'm like watching it. Like I can't <laughs> tell anymore. And then like, I can't even. And then as a creative person, and you guys can attest this, you said it to people and they're like, oh no, it's great. And you're like, but you're my friend. You're just fucking telling right. me that tell me what all the time. You, I mean, you, yeah. all the time. Yeah, and you end up in this permanent loop of like I suck, and then someone tells you you're great, and you're like, no, you try and convince them you suck, and it just keeps being this like endless loop of whatever, you know. I uh, I remember telling someone's like I fooled them, didn't I? They thought that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my favorite go-to joke anytime someone praises me. It's like got them fooled now, don't I? But uh, yeah, I mean, they selected it and it was, it's perfect. It's exactly where I want it to be. Like, it's, you know, going to be really great. The festival, you know, to run down that, like you, you can select anything you want. There's some super great shit playing. But yeah, with Chattanooga, like if you have a chance to watch anything this weekend, there's like The Leech is playing, which is going to be really good. I'm excited for that. Something in uh, uh, The Ones You Didn't Burn, I'm really excited for. Uh, Mike McNullet's documentaries on there, which is probably what I'll kick it off with tonight. Yeah. I met I met Magnola a few years ago um, at one of the Mondocons back when they right, started right. doing those like 2014, 2015 and I you know like I didn't know what to expect from him and I remember him just being like he really gave me a lot of his time like much more than he needed to like he talked to me for like 30 That's minutes cool. we talked about like itty bitty hellboy like cool. he's he's just generally like I was so like you know during that same day I met Bernie Wrightson and there's like a few guys I'm like I never thought I would be like meeting these cool yeah. kids like you know it was, it was such a like it was such a great moment but I remember McNulla just you know we talked about like Adam we specifically got into Hellboy and I told him that I you know I said uh, I think you've created your Batman with this character oh yeah for sure like it's a it's a character that like thrives on reinterpretation yeah. like after Itty Bitty Hellboy and the movies and well, at that time, the Del Toro ones had only came out. We hadn't got the uh, unfortunately maimed Neil Marshall. Yeah, I one. still haven't watched that, even though I like David Harbour. But... I feel like if it weren't tampered with, it could have been really good. I think it was tampered with a lot. I think it, you know, it shows. Like, there's a reason why a lot of people who worked on it didn't show up for the premiere. Like, it just famously had been mishandled. 
yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, it, uh, that's premiering tonight. And then there's several short films, including one called The Woodsman. That's really great. That's, you know, it's going to be, it's on there. And like I said, just such a boom, like a dearth of voices and opportunities. So many female filmmakers. There's just such a great, like, just breadth of programming going on this year. And I'm like really, really excited to get into that with everybody. What is the total runtime on your film? Seven minutes. Seven minutes. So yeah, you're in the short film block, right? Yep. It was a 10 minute piece and I'm like, does it need this scene to be this long? That doesn't need to be this long. That line doesn't even have a purpose. It's gone. Uh, you know, just little, those editing choices. I know there's an older gentleman that's on the cover of it. One of your actors. And I know you've done work with him in the past. Uh, for some reason, the name Frank comes to mind. No. Yeah. Frank, he, he's done some work with you in the past as well. And, and I guess his role in the film, he's a prominent character, of course, because he's on the cover. There's a lot to actually talk about with Frank. So Frank, I'd come to meet through the uh, Mac theater department through other people. And man, it's like, I remember just seeing him perform for the first time and being like, this guy has such like gravitas. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you, you know, like at movies are littered with these amazing actors that usually like really great character actors that show up in a scene, like a Harry Dean Stan right. type that just shows up and they're in the scene like there may be two scenes in the whole movie but they're what give that movie like it's legitimacy right. they like make the world feel real and they feel because they look like somebody you would know definitely you know and they've been they they don't have like perfect faces they don't have you know movie star good looks right. but they what they do have is such a presence that like grounds a film in a way that's really significant and makes you feel like you know it gives a you know it gives authority it gives like realness to early philip seymour really, hoffman work is a right. great example you know, yeah, yeah, nights yeah. And, and I, I remember seeing Frank in a play and thinking like, like fuck, this guy's good, and like he was so good because he wasn't trying to do too much. And then I ended up meeting him and his son Ian, and getting to know him fairly well and finding out he's like, yeah, he did theater when he was in the army back in the '60s. He served in Vietnam. Like this dude had been around the block and had seen some shit. Damn, what a story. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm like, you know, like. It's like, and you're still so committed to the theater. Like, you're just like, that's wild. You know, and like, to me, it's like, you think somebody would go through that. And it's like, maybe they wouldn't, you know, maybe, you know, most of the Vietnam vets I know, theater is like the last thing. <laughs> right. the like, yeah. you know, if it, this guy was such a creator and he was like a legitimate, like genius. And I don't throw that word around lightly. He was so fucking brilliant. Yeah. And I'd worked at any opportunity I had to put him in something, even if I just had to like fucking cram him in there somewhere for like a second. I'm like getting Frank in there. And, um, so when I went to make this movie, like the, what happened to the others, like in a nutshell, like the idea of the film is it's born out of the idea of generate inter intergenerational trauma. Like what happens with, you know, I sometimes like, you know, like I said, I had to work at the prison and there was stuff that came out of that thought process that there's ideas I have that I thought about. I can see it so much more that I never would have thought about, like, you know, like very human kind of things. Like, I remember standing in spots and, like, sometimes, you know, like, even, like, places that aren't inside of our prison, say, like, uh, there's that uh, Civil War reenactment thing. Yeah, you know, Palinab. Palinab. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Spaces like that. And it's like, you think to yourself, like, horrible things have happened where I'm standing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, not where, not where I'm at right, you know, not in this moment, but, the, like, it's happened. Like, there's been blood spilled here there's been people die horrific deaths here you know or you go to a, a, you know someone you know passed away in a car crash and you look at the site and it's innocuous right it's so strange like you look at it and you think like this is like this is history now 
like these things don't you know you listen to people talk about pearl harbor or you know uh the great depression like older people and it seems so distant in the rearview mirror that it can never come back to you right and the irony is i remember packaging this movie together and pulling together my team and like my production designer and my art director were these two theater girls and they really impressed me like they came forward i met them through the theater department they'd been working on theater sets for fucking throughout high school junior high like they'd been painting and decorating sets and doing all this stuff so they really knew the language i'm like it's that just dial it back i remember talking to them about this film and i'm like yeah this movie is like I, it was kind of it's so like even like the one girl brought it up recently and it was really amazing but i uh i remember telling them about this film's about intergenerational trauma it's about you know a grandfather who experienced and experienced something that is only history to his grandson like that is only in the newspapers and the history books and in the news and it's talked about in a past tense and is something that's never on the radar of this small child and even his son is like overhearing it like it's past news it's like hearing about Pearl Harbor and constantly like harping about stuff that just isn't consequential anymore but then it comes back around cyclically that these things these problems we have as human beings are something you can never really escape we find ourselves coming back to the same sorts of problems every so often every century or so we find ourselves coming back to issues where it's like we thought we were past that as a society and now we're back dealing with it again so i remember telling her that i i, I told her you know we got talking about 9 11 was a huge you know moment that kind of inspired like the thematic aspect of this film where it's like you know i have little kids now and they're being raised and i remember all of us of a certain age remember that right. like like I remember when it happened and like in hindsight I'm like this is what Pearl Harbor was to like this generation Absolutely. before us or you know World War II or JFK's assassination or these like significant historical moments that to us are history books right. and now I'm meeting people in their 20s who weren't alive when it right. happened oh yeah you know, and it's amazing to me to think about to like just trying to wrap my head around this like absolutely like I'm like just drastic life-changing experience we have that they will never actually grow up having experienced and i remember telling the the one girl who ended up working on the art department i said in your lifetime it's going to happen i said there's going to be something that happens in your lifetime that's going to revolutionize human you know, mankind like it's going to be you know it's going to be changed it's going to change everything and i didn't know i was talking about three months from yeah COVID. right right it was going to hit right yeah, yeah, and and she was like, you were right, like, so much shit is just like, she's like, in my lifetime, I feel like I've experienced so much of what we talked about in that first meeting, and, you know, to me, I'm just like, you know, it's like, wild to me, like, because I, of course, didn't want that to fucking happen, nobody well, yeah, wants that to happen. It's not like you were trying but, to be fucking Nostradamus right. or anything, but, but... Yeah, but thematically, it was just like one of those things where I'm like, this is what the film's about, like, it's about these things, it's about a lot of other things, it's about, you know... uh patriarchal issues of you know being a father and being a son and being having a grandson and like how your grandfather and your grandson connection can be so real but still so problematic between a father and son you know and the, how much a, a you know a son doesn't want the grandson to carry on traditions of anxiety or concern 100%. or mental health issues that we all have 100%. You know, like it's, it's, yeah. It's, so it's like there's these dynamics between the three. I remember an early feedback I got was that there were no female characters in the story. And that was an omission not to exclude people, but it was more like for myself, I, you know, if I'm going to include characters, I want to make sure, like, in the sense of the design of the film, was to keep it super linear and keep it from grandfather to son to grandson because that 
is me speaking to my own experiences growing up with my grandfather and my dad, right. you know, prior to his passing, right. like having those things that, you know, you look at and you're like, this is what I struggled with. This is what I personally understood as a conflict within myself. And I'm going to exercise these emotions out into these characters and breathe life into them. But Frank was the absolute best casting for that character. He, to me, gave it that sense of like sadness and heartbreak that needed to happen like that fear for the future of his own family for something at the time at this well his experiences seasoned him also too to be able to convey that character whether with there there was intent behind that decision you know i'm not saying he made that decision based on that but just from everything i I didn't even know the backstory really of of his personal life until you just told it to me but it just makes all the sense in the world now right oh yeah 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 he he 100 was clocked in on that character he knew exactly what that character needed to be and, you know, he was able to bring that, like, you know, I told him, and like, and as somebody who went through all the shit he'd been through, like, clearly it was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, and his son, you know, the last thing he'd ever want his son to do is, like, you know, enlist in the army and go through the shit he mm-hmm. had to go through at a young age. Right. And, you know, his son, you know, has such a, like, beautiful, like, you know, just loves his dad, like, truly loved him. And, you know, Frank passed away this year, like, not all that long ago yeah. from cancer he'd been battling for the last year. And it was really, it's really bittersweet to have the film being uh, released and, you know, hopefully like people love it and they love Frank in it and, you know, they're able to see like what he really wanted to do because it is a pretty subtle performance. Like he's not trying to chew the scene and he's not trying to mm-hmm. take, you know, steal the show from the other actors. He's so in the groove of what we were trying to do that it's like, I hope that people realize how much of that was a choice. You know, because Frank is a larger-than-life person. He was a really funny guy and, like, really, like, outgoing and, like, wicked sense of humor. And, you know, so the character's very much, like, it's it's a version of Frank, but it's not, like, the it's not Frank in the way that we yeah. know him. And I really just hope that, you know, like, that when it all comes out and it's finally public and people can see it in, like, a simple way that, you know, there's definitely like a sense of like remembering this guy who like really brought forward this like great. It was just an amazing. Not now. to insinuate there was any type of intent or you knew it would happen with Frank, but honestly, this is a good thing too. It's it's allowed you all to immortalize him in some respects, and you know perhaps he'll get some of the attention like you mentioned before and acclaim that he deserves right. and recognition that he deserves with his right. performance in this short film and the exposure that you're going to get through the Chattanooga Film Festival specifically. I hope so. Yeah. I hope that, you know, people, you know, like to me, it's like, it's a, I cut together a reel of like some of Frank's like greatest moments with the stuff we've done and like putting that all together and just being like, you know, just seeing like the shades of this guy over the years, like the different, like, you know, characters he's played with me and like, you know, from like big and crazy to like very low key in the pocket at performances and to just like you know put that all together and like see this and like know that like you know it's i wish he could have saw even just seen it get selected just like know that had that news like they just know that like hey man like your work is like good enough for these guys right. like these people looked at it and they loved what you did and they wanted to share it with people yeah, you that's know awesome. getting yeah. that announcement getting that selection email and just seeing like you know the way they like personally wrote it up and they're like we love your film and we want to share it with our audience that to like really it was like an emotional moment for me being like you know like we've worked so hard on this and you know one of the main engines behind it isn't here to see this anymore and knowing that i'll never get to work with him again yeah on anything has been like a real uh 
like I said, like a truly bittersweet thing where it's like, here's this like great capsule of like what we did, the culmination of everything we did yeah. together. And, you know, just being able to like finally get that out in the world, it was just like a really uh, sobering moment, right. yeah, I guess. Definitely. Absolutely. And, yeah. I'm, I'm really proud of the work you did on it. I'm, I'm really proud of everybody who worked on that movie. We've shared the Chattanooga Film Festival links on our social media pages leading up to the conversation today. We're going to share it some more just to make sure we get that saturation out there. Even perhaps people, you know, post-conversation to take some of the legwork out for them so that they can just ease of access, hit the links if you're interested in viewing uh, Doug's film. And Doug, I don't want this to be the last time that we talk on the podcast either. I know you got other stuff that you're going to be working on in the future and, and you've been so gracious with your time today too. This was particularly a, a good one for me because like I said, I'm kind of a amateur film guy that's just kind of teaching himself stuff so this is a big one for me so i super appreciate it man i love i love hearing you talk about it <laughs> oh yeah yeah man like i yeah dude you got questions and shit shoot them and i'll gladly come back anytime you guys want Hell yeah. like i uh we can talk about anything doesn't have to be just say, promoting anything but uh yeah i'm so glad to have you guys on the work you're doing promoting the film honestly the work you guys are doing by just showcasing people and we could have even went on about comic books we didn't i mean you mentioned it a few times but oh i know we, i know if and yeah and we, we've got to talk about vulgar cats sometime whenever we get a little bit more time because i oh, really yeah. enjoyed that you enjoy oh, sharing yeah. your work with me and but doug thank you very much sir yeah, for your thank time you so much doug appreciate it man and uh Dude, thank you guys so much for everything you're doing. I really yeah. appreciate it. You guys are doing it. We appreciate you, sir, and, and you make our job easy because yeah, we enjoy the sure. work that you do. For sure. <laughs> Thanks, dude. All you right, take man. care, take sir. Take care, buddy. Thank you. folks we are back with you thanks for sticking around what an awesome guest oh dude yeah absolutely like i said uh somebody that enjoys making animations and many films himself and doing some graphical work that was quite an amazing episode for me so i really really enjoyed that yeah one. doug's a fountain of knowledge and i mean we could have talked to him for another two hours so but we definitely wanted to kind of build that character profile like we have with so many of our guests first time on the show get into what they're kind of currently doing, but definitely expect and Doug to be back on the show at a later date. I definitely, you know, us all being film fans and so on and so forth, we love talking films, talking favorite movies, whether it's genre specific, whether it's current films, whether it's TV, Right. You know, as we already talked about Obi-Wan in the open. So we will definitely have him back on for more of that type of chitter chatter. But right now, we're going to get back into thanking Egon Casanova, Derek Hankins, our last guest. We appreciate his time last week. Yeah, it was great. Again, it's, I think it turned out to be a very great episode in, in its own right. And appreciate anybody that's listened to it so far. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. Even if you don't like pro wrestling, it's entertaining, uh, insightful, informative. Right, it might turn you on to something that you didn't really realize, so and give it a chance. And shockingly, there's a lot of, even if you were into pro wrestling at one time, there's a lot of historical references and talk. So it's it, and there's a little bit more of an educational piece of the professional wrestling conversation there too. So even if you 
Don't even know if you'd ever like it. Something you never cared for ever, you know, just give anything a chance. That's what the show's about. We try to give everything a chance. So check it out if you haven't already. That's episode 19 with Derek Hankins, Egon Casanova. Also, I wanted to throw a special shout out to Heather Pierce. She DM me. She listened to the last throwback episode that we did. The hippies and <laughs> Cato hates hippies and snuggies is the title of that. But we get into hippies, hobos, any variation there of that. Uh, you know, Heather hit us up and and it said that she knew the person that we were talking about at the party. Who I have no idea who we were talking about. I uh, uh, at the party at Cato's I probably party. wasn't at that party, so I don't, I'm not sure. I don't recall. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I wasn't like trying to go after anybody in in particular. So like, but she she did confirm that that person is still in existence and they are still the exact same person. So. Good on them for on them, just man. really locking into being, being a hippie. The, yeah, I guess. Hell yeah. Or whatever they identify as. <laughs> no hate. Just good for you. You found found your calling in life, I guess. So next week, episode twenty one, the second installment of our cults, conspiracies, and killers series. Ooh, it's gonna be good. Am Shirikyo, or Aleph which is the Japanese doomsday cult. Famously, you may remember these folks in history in 1995 was the Japanese subway bombing. They're responsible for some deaths and several hundreds of injuries. Uh, they they chemical did not attacks, yes, right? chemical attacks, a gas attack in particular. They did not uh, do the damage at which that they wished, not to, you know, infer that what damage they did was minimal right. per se, you know, people did lose their lives. But with, they had intents of killing thousands, and they did not, fortunately. So in that way, they were kind of a wet fart in church, if you will. But <laughs> there were civilians killed. We're going to be inviting Ridge back onto oh, the RJ, show. Baby. And so RJ will be back on the show. Speaking of RJ, want to talk about this week. We launched the ATI Facebook community group. So that's to engage our audience a little bit more. You know, Facebook has a lot of provisions and obstacles in the way for us to interact with our listeners and gain new listeners when it comes to the fan page aspect it's so monetarily driven nowadays right we don't get the same reach unless we're spending lots of money on ads and just to peel back the curtain a little bit we did spend money on some ads and there wasn't a huge return on investment quite frankly and i did for about 45 days or so so we are trying to take a little bit of a different approach created a group to engage the community a little bit more the group is serving multiple purposes. Purposes. It also allows our historical guests or our future guests to and our fans to get on there, interact with one another, create posts, create content. Share I, events. Yeah, whatever. absolutely. You know, specifically, it's this is an easy example to use, but the bands that we've had on, it's a chance for them to get on and promote their shows they right. have coming up. Jason Hebb already took that opportunity. Jason Hebb had a submission in. We had his band No No Point on the Cato Gatsby episode, the memorial episode. But Jason is actually about three episodes out. He's going to be our guest, our first, uh, technically, I guess, our second episode in July. But we're going to have Jason Hebb on, and he's going to be talking about his two punk bands that he's in, Grave Neighbors, as well as No Point. Talk about some things they have in the works. They're recording at Avalon. So that's another little bit of a preview there. But back to the ATI Facebook community uh, group that we created. All submissions welcome from folks that we've invited back into the group, people with businesses. So Brandon and his wife. They're going to be sharing some of the Edwa's and Perry's Emporium stuff there. So expect that. Uh, you know, so anybody, any of our artists that we've had on the show, even once we have some of our small businesses on, so like Brady, for example, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes that he's holding, he's welcome to post his seminar stuff there. So be on the lookout for that in the future. A lot of information, a lot of sharing. But we're also going to do some special programming through the community specifically, that group. 
so Ridge in particular, we're going to have uh, a segment called Waxing On with RJ, Ridge Jackson. And he's going to be putting up whatever he's spending at the moment, you know, kind of chilling in the cut, marinating, <laughs> getting lost in the sauce with. So Ridge is going to, and his preferred method of listening. So Ridge actually uniquely has a, has subscribed to a tape, uh, some, or excuse me, like a tape box every month. So like a cassette tape. tape? Yeah, yeah, cassettes. And cassettes are starting to make their way back too for audio files and people who are into the analog experience. So He's going to be sharing some of the bands that he's picking out on that he's really enjoying through this subscription service. And just, you know, I've given him kind of free reign, even if it's somebody that's well known, but they got something new out. Um, Ridge is going to be creating some original submissions. So Ridge, Ridge is off this week. He'll be back on next week. He's on vacation, coincidentally, right now. It's that time of the year, folks. So Ridge is going to be a little bit more involved in the show and, and doing that in particular. So look, look forward to that. We also want to talk about the cookout. I alluded to it a few different times, you know, on social media. The cookout is a special release episode that we're going to have out. I don't want to reveal too much because it's going to be a little bit of a surprise, but there's going to be a little bit of a tasty treat and reveal for everybody with regards to the cookout special. Definitely got some behind the scenes stuff. Some behind the scenes stuff. If you've liked any of our guests that we've had in the past, stay tuned, take a listen. It's going to be a unique concept, so I don't want to reveal too much with that. So it'll it will be on our normal show feed. So be on the look on look out for that dropping in the near future as well, close close to right after the Fourth of July date. We want to also send out a kind reminder one last time because you know just kind of the timing of episode drops and that sort of thing. I think this is going to be our last opportunity to remind folks that on July second at the sinkhole once again is the Fister and Bastard show that is taking place. And this is a return to the live music scene for both bands. And the sinkhole is a little bit of a smaller, more intimate venue. So you need to buy your tickets in advance. It is going to sell out. I think so. Even if they have just a few spots with, you know, kind of walk-in transient type stuff, day of show, I'd recommend getting them in advance. And it, it doesn't hurt anything if you just want to support the bands, even if you're not going to make it out, you can buy a ticket. Right. You know, and, and it is just cheaper. Local you know, art $10 music. online. With the service fees, like I mentioned on previous episodes, it's cheaper even than paying in person. So support these guys, and each band contains mineral area natives in particular that are doing things on a national scale now. So if for more details and how to purchase on in advance, you can either go to the Sinkholes website. We've actually shared that link in our stories. Or you can actually go to the Sinkholes business Facebook page and look at their events and purchase tickets. Fister and Bastard both have shared information on their social media sites as well namely facebook as well as their instagram stories so check it out there for this week i am barry insane on instagram and twitter if you want to catch me and i'm josh the ogw on twitter or underscore joshua welch on instagram and we're out of time until next time i should say (laughs) good night and good luck yep stay safe out there guys Hey, this is Josh from ACI Podcast. For show updates and news about the podcast, follow us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast 22 on Twitter at podcast underscore ATI, on Instagram at the ATI Podcast, on TikTok at ATI Podcast. DMs are always welcome. Have a question for the show? You can always email us at ATI Podcast questions at gmail.com. Stay safe out there.